Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. Joining me today in the studio is Rick Levine, and we're going to be talking about minor aspects in astrology, or as Rick will encourage me to call them, the non-Ptolemaic aspects, but we'll, we'll get into that. Um, so hey, Rick, thanks for joining me today. I really wish you would have started differently. <laughs> you, you really don't want them to be called the minor aspects? Well, um, first of all, thanks for uh, inviting me back after blowing out the power last month. Yeah, we are uh, not going to say anything <laughs> negative about Uranus. Uranus is a very nice planet, and I appreciate it very much. Um, I hope it doesn't end this podcast episode. No, I think we'll be fine uh, this time. Okay. So my problem with calling these aspects minor aspects <clears throat> is it relegates them to a less than position. And it's my experience from having worked with them um, over and over and over again for, for decades now right. that they are no less important, they are no more minor than Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto are minor or then uh, you know any any one particular technique is is minor. We can do a chart without Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, and because of the fractal nature of the universe, it'll work. Mm -hmm. You know, for that matter, we could do a chart with someone's Sun, Moon, and Rising sign. I mean, it's a beginning. However, when you use the non-Ptolemaic aspects, you fill in information that simply wasn't there and um and and there's no amount of of inference from the information without the minor aspects can you actually jump to what you get when you begin to use them right okay well, well so let's get into that debate but let's set the backdrop first so that's your your position your very strong minor aspect or whatever aspect proponent <laughs> uh, we're going to come up with some terminology as we go sure uh, it'll make me uh, more more able to to do this but so part of the backdrop is i did a uh, episode earlier this month to set the stage on the five what i called major aspects or sure. uh, let's say ptolemaic aspects and that's the conjunction, sextile, square, trine, and opposition. And for 2,000 years now, those have been the primary aspects that astrologers have used in Western astrology, in the, starting in the ancient Hellenistic, the Greek and Roman traditions, going through the medieval traditions, and then the Renaissance traditions. Um, but then, so, and those aspects, so just for a diagram, our designer, Paula Bellomini, made me a little diagram today. That shows those major aspects, and the conjunction is zero degrees, the opposition 180, the trine 120, the square is 90, and the sextile is 60 degrees. And around what time period did these um, major aspects become cemented Ptolemaically? Uh, no, in the first century BCE. So that's one of the issues I have with uh, I'm never going to call them Ptolemaic aspects because Ptolemy lived three centuries later, later mm -hmm. after these were introduced. So but, nothing but rather than being 2,000 years, then let's call it 1,400 years because the actual first additional change to it was Johannes Kepler right. some 500 years ago. Yeah. Okay. So that's good. So let's set up our time frame. I like that you're doing that. So first century, let's say around 100 BCE, we have this new system that's introduced that introduces some aspects of older traditions from Mesopotamia mm -hmm. and some traditions from Egypt. And one of the things that it introduces at this time is the five, uh, what it calls is aspects or configurations or 
um, forms of testimony or witnessing where the planets right. were said to be able to see each other through different ways, both by degree, like we just showed, but also by sign, right. that they were also using sign-based aspects as well as degree-based aspects. And that was actually intimately tied into the rationale for the five configurations. Right. So that's introduced then. It's then used for, let's say, over a thousand years past that point. And then, yeah, so we have this astrologer who comes along, and James Holden um, talks about this in his book, uh, A History of Horoscopic Astrology, when he mentions Johannes Kepler. He says, Kepler invented several new aspects, 18 degrees, 24 degrees, 30 degrees, 36 degrees, 45 degrees, 72, 108, 135, 144, and 150. He goes on to say, of these, the 30 degree, the 45, and the 135, and the 150 aspects have become adopted by most astrologers. Um, and then he goes on and talks about something else, secondary progressions. Now, wasn't the what we call the 30 degree and 150 degree, weren't those by signs part of the Ptolemaic construction, but they were specifically non-aspects? Yeah, they were called aversions. They were specifically mm -hmm. thought to be the absence of an aspect. So, for example, if a planet was in Cancer, it was said to aspect seven other signs. Right. The sextile, square, trine, and opposition signs, yeah. as well as the conjunction. And then it was said to be an aversion to or not aspect aspecting four other signs. And those four signs would roughly coincide with what is today the inconjunct or the quincunx or semi-sextile. Right. And let's go. Well, the inconjunct uh, theoretically would be both semi-sextiles and quincunxes because they're non-aspects. And this is a little bit of a languaging problem that I think we have in modern astrology mm -hmm. is the sloppy use of the word inconjunct because technically an inconjunct would be either or both. Mm. Whereas a quincunx is a quincunx and a semi-sextile is a semi-sextile, and they very specifically clarify that we're not talking about the Ptolemaic universe. Yeah. So the um so the the inconjunct or the um quincunx, those are two names in modern times that are used for the 150 degree aspect. That's one of the things that you're saying. Yes. Okay. But what I'm saying is is that is that the use of the word inconjunct actually, I believe, goes back further and actually was used as a way of describing either the quincunx or the modern quincunx or the modern semi-sextile. Okay. And so I think that sometimes the use of the word inconjunct was like an intermediate word um, between aversion or n n uh, it's like a non-aspect. If you think of the word inconjunct, it's like there's nothing there, so to speak. Right. And I think that it's important for us modern astrologers, if we are using uh, the 30-degree semi-sextile and the 150-degree quincunx to use those words rather than that intermediate word in conjunct. It's just a little sure. languaging thing of mine. That makes sense to me. Okay, uh, so we'll say quincunx for the purpose of this um, when we're talking about the 150-degree aspect, and we'll say semi-sextile for the 30-degree. Yeah, and I think it's interesting also because in interpretation, um, I know a lot of people who kind of before they have real experience, 
think that the semi-sextile functions like a trine, a half trine, and a half of a half trine. Mm. In other words, the semi-sextile is like a half of a sextile, which is a half of a trine, and that's a sequence. And the fact of the matter is that the semi-sextile functions much more closely to the quincunx. Mm, okay. It's not an easy it's it's not an easy aspect. It's an annoyance. It's it's an aversion. It's a these two planets, it's not that they're just not connecting, it's that they are absolutely disconnecting. Mm. It's, it's like it's almost like a misalignment rather than a no alignment. Yeah. Well, and that's the I guess one of the important distinctions we'll have to get into is to what extent is an aspect always a forming of a connection between two planets versus when is it sometimes um, not a relationship or a non-relationship between two planets, yeah. which sounds like what you're describing yeah. there. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think one of the th reasons why I still maintain and think the terminology of major versus minor aspects might still be appropriate is I do think that there's something unique and important about the five major aspects because they're situated um, not just as geometrical configurations, but also they're tied in with the zodiac and the zodiac signs and the interaction between the signs. And I think that that is very significant and that then begs the next question and the observation that it was a brilliant mathematician like Kepler who noted that aspects may not be a function of the zodiac, they may actually be a function of what we moderners might call mathematical harmonics. And, and therein lies part of the, part of my issue with calling them minor. Um, as you know, I'm probably more of a modernist. I totally respect all the old traditions and, and have studied them some, certainly not as much as, as you. But, um, but as a modernist, there's a part of me that is at least partially willing to acknowledge the fact that there are not 12 signs up there. There are 12 signs in here, and that the magic of 12 as a patterning agent is incredibly powerful for all the mathematical reasons we know, because you can half it and third it and quarter it. And I mean, it's totally facile, and it makes absolute sense why we use a base 12 in keeping time or anything that has, is cyclical in nature mm -hmm. because of its high level of functionality. But, <laughs> this is a big but, but I do not believe that astrology is dependent upon 12 signs in a zodiac, even though it's the fundamental piece to how we use astrology. Yeah, it's not dependent on it, but this is, this is really the rub when it comes to the minor aspect. Part of the reason Kepler introduced minor aspects is that he, he rejected the zodiac and he wanted to get rid of the zodiac. So that's a problem because even though later astrologers have followed Kepler in adopting some of these other minor aspects, they have continued using the zodiac. And yeah. most Western astrologers do not agree with him that there's no value, that there's no practical value, not just conceptual or abstract, but actual practical meaning for the 12 zodiac signs. And I would fall on your side of that equation rather than Kepler's, just to be clear. Right. I'm not I'm I'm not a radical revisionist saying that the zodiac does not function, it does. Right. I mean, at least that's my observation. But as an interesting side note, it's interesting to note that Kepler could not go to septiles, hmm. that he absolutely specifically wrote 
God does not use sevens. They're too complicated. Okay. <laughs> and herein is another little lesson that I think we have because the the difference of the modern mind and the Renaissance mind and the Hellenistic mind, we've actually developed tools and techniques and computers. Kepler might have felt very differently if he had a computer to calculate the one-seventh, two-seventh, three-sevenths, which do not come out evenly. They're, they're, not, they're not expressible as decimals. And so that bothered him and said, nope, can't use them. But it's, um, but it is intriguing that, that there's a lot of breakthrough geniuses who go so far and then go, can't go any further because that doesn't work. And then it takes someone else to take a, a, another step. Well, yeah. Or, or another way of looking at it is that every astrologer draws a somewhat arbitrary and somewhat subjective line somewhere about the amount of points or that they're willing to incorporate <laughs> into their system. Absolutely. So, like yeah. an example of that that's happening today is, you know, the amount of bodies of celestial bodies that one could incorporate it into your astrology has just ballooned, and everybody, I think, often ends up drawing a line somewhere. Like, are you going to use? Just the seven traditional planets, or you can incorporate the outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. If you incorporate Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, um, maybe you're okay with that. But then, do you incorporate the new um, minor planetary bodies like Eris and Sedna and other stuff like that? And then, if you incorporate those, do you incorporate the smaller asteroids such as Ceres? Ceres is the largest asteroid. But then, you, if you incorporate Ceres, how many other asteroids? And do you incorporate fixed stars, or do you use Arabic parts or lots? Like everybody has that line that's has, somewhere ha, has to have it. Has to have it. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now NASA is tracking about six hundred thousand objects mm -hmm. that they track with orbits around the sun. You know, over a hundred thousand asteroids, right? Um, and you know, you know, ten thousand of them or so, maybe more, are named. Hmm. And uh, and yes, so this becomes an absolute significant piece of the puzzle, and yet it's very likely that in some future astrology, there will be some mathematical tools that will be completely um, artificial intelligence, computer-driven, that will do complex analysis on bodies that we can't even, you know, handling, for me, handling 10 or 12 or 13 points is about as much as my feeble brain, you know, and I've used asteroids. And then you left out, of course, the not only um, Chiron, but Chiron as the lead planet that represents a whole class of what we now call centaurs. Mm -hmm. And if you're talking about Eris and Makemake and some of those planets, well, they're really Plutoids. They're, they're of the same, you know, kind of stuff that Pluto is. Mm -hmm. And so, in a way, if you use Pluto, you're using it kind of as a placeholder for these other planets. Like if you use Chiron without using Nemesis and Kareklo and, and Pholos and so on, you're using Chiron kind of as a placeholder for that whole class of, of objects. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's part of the part of the question is where do we draw the lines on the overwhelming amount of information that we have at our fingertips. Yeah, and, and at what point are there diminishing returns when you just have too many um, things, too many factors, too many variables that you're taking into account? And I know that was one of the questions that came in through Twitter today that we'll maybe we'll get to mm -hmm. at some point. Maybe we should step back and like establish more our basis. Um, sure. I wanted to put some of these diagrams up that Paula made 
just to give people a visual representation of some of the minor aspects that we're talking about. So there is the so let's imagine you have a point in the middle of cancer, let's say 15 degrees of cancer. If you draw a 30 degree uh, aspect line, both earlier in zodiacal order and later in zodiacal order, that brings you to the semi-sextile, which is 30 degrees. Then there's the semi-square, which is 45 degrees. And the semi-square is often referred to as either the half square or the semi-quadrant. Okay, right, because both of those two aspects are basically just half of the mm -hmm. larger aspects that they're named after, the semi-sextile being half of the 60 degrees of a sextile and the semi-square being half of the 90 degrees of a square. Also, the semi-sex—I'm sorry, the semi-square is technically an octile because it's one-eighth. So you see that referred to more in some of the Germanic traditions, Uranian astrology and so on, mm -hmm. but it is, it is also referred to that way. Okay. Um, let's see, other aspects that we have here. We've talked about the 150 degree aspect, yeah. which is the quincunx. Yep. Um, but then there's also the sesquiquadrate, which is 135 degrees. Right. And I would say that if we're using semi square for parallel construction, we would use sesqui square. Whereas if we were using sesqui quadrate, we would say semi quadrate. But we could also call those the octile and the trioctile. Again, part of the thing is naming these things can be can be complicated, but they're not as scary as it appears on the surface. Okay. Um, so, and then the other diagram that Paula made for minor aspects includes the novile, which is how many degrees? Forty, 40 degrees. Forty degrees, which is one third of a trine. Okay. So, in other words, if you're going to really do that trine reduction thing. It would be a trine is one third of a circle and a novile is one third of a trine. One third of a third is one ninth. Hmm. Nine times 40 degrees is 360. So the novile is one ninth of a circle and an important aspect in Vedic astrology. Okay. Um, let's see, going back. And then we have the quintile, which is 72 degrees. And the and of course, when we divide a circle by five and get that five-pointed star, the series of quintiles is actually quintile by quintile, by quintile on the other side, and then quintile. In other words, it's five points around on a five-pointed star. And it is my contention that of all of the so-called minor or non-Ptolemaic aspects, mm -hmm. that the quintile is the one that is that that holds the most power and the most importance in 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 this whole uh, opening of this of this vast array of of complexity. Well, the quintile is actually important to me as somebody that doesn't use minor aspects because that's one of the only ones that does create a polygon, right? In the same way that the major aspects do. No, I mean no. Uh, sub, uh, any any. I mean, e or an equal sided polygon, I should say. Like for example. If you look at the, if you inscribe some of the major aspects on a circle, the trying the trine creates a three sided triangle that yeah. connects together three signs, or the square creates an actual four sided square Correct. polygon, and the the um, sextile creates a hexagon, and that was actually the original name for the sextile, as they would call it the hexagonal aspect, right? Which yeah. is basically every other sign. They're all and since um, the major aspects are all. Um, based on 12, they all divide evenly into 12. So they, they all hold up 
I was going to say the illusion. They all hold up the illusion of the Zodiac. And again, an illusion can be real. It's just something that is imposed by the brain onto, on, or the mind onto reality. But with the quintile, you get a five-pointed star. It's still a five, it's still a five-sided, um, polygon. Right. But with the septile, you get a seven-sided um, polygon hmm. with a, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the number is dividing into 12. Even if it doesn't come out zodiacal, like the like the um, the quintiles do not come out zodiacal, meaning that with the what we call the major aspects, if two things are at twelve degrees, we immediately know that they are um, that they are within an aspect because the whole system is based upon that one through thirty every thirty degrees. And so if you have two planets that are at 12 degrees, they're either going to be conjunct, opposed, trine, square, um, sextile, or in conjunct, or uh, have, having aversion. Right. Um, but with the, but with the quintile series, it's still a five pointed, um, uh, star or polygon, a pentagram. Hmm. Um, but it no longer maintains its, zodiacal numbering it kind of falls through the cracks that way okay um so but we'll come back to why that's more important in a little bit okay so let's see to finish off this so that yeah we said uh quintile is 72 the biquintile is 144 degrees Mm -hmm. uh the septile is how much well, it's it's actually it's fifty one and it's roughly fifty one um, uh, degrees and forty two or forty three minutes. You see, with the when you divide three sixty by seven, it it's one of those numbers like pi that never resolves and never repeats itself. Okay, and so the septile as. Um, I, I call it, um, it, it's just under 52 degrees. Hmm. I mean, you can do exact, it's 51 degrees, 40 minutes, 20, uh, 27 seconds, something, and it's still, it's never exact. And then finally, the last one is the quindecile? Well, um, the, <laughs> actually, I, th- that is referred to, I think, as the quindecilli. Because uh, it was following Noel Till, yeah, okay, um, and um, and and without being dismissive, I would consider that to be less important. Although I know there is a whole school of people who believe that, at least with medical astrology, that the um, uh, the the quindicilli um, is uh, incredibly important. Um, but but with back to the septile for a second, mm-hmm. the thing about the septile is that that's one seventh of a circle. Now we in our minds we can all imagine a five pointed star. In fact, we could all draw one. But there is a f- seven pointed star that has the angles a little bit tighter. Mm. And 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 if you're talking about the septile, you have to also talk about the other points on that seven-pointed star because they're all part of that aspect series. Mm. So you have the septile, the biceptile, and the triceptile, and then around to the other side, the triceptile, biceptile, and septile back. Mm-hmm. So there's seven points. The septile is just under 52 degrees. The um, biceptile is a little bit more than 102 degrees, um, and the three-sevenths is about 154 and a quarter. Okay. And so all of these 
points are not points that I would calculate on my fingers or my abacus, but because the computer does it, it reveals a very deep layer of magic that we'll also get to in a little bit. Okay. So, um, but again, it's seven pointed star is also a regular polygon. Okay. So Kepler was the one that introduced a bunch of these. What was his, he was, he was like 15th, 16th century. Um, he was late 1500s, early 16, yeah, 15, um, early, early 16th, 14, 15th, 16th century. Okay. Yeah. And he was a famous astronomer primarily, but also an astrologer. Um, he, well, he was a famous astronomer because there was no difference between astrology and astronomy at the time. And he came across and slaved for years and came up with the laws of planetary motion, mm-hmm. which is the basis of modern astronomy. So even though he, his job was mathematicus, he was an astrologer, that was his day job, mm-hmm. you know, the keeper of time for Emperor Rudolph. Um, and his great contribution was the Rudolphine tables, which were like a major improvement because they had the orbit of Mars corrected from Ptolemy's eight minutes of arc a year that were off and and Kepler did that, but but he was an astrologer because he he figured out the planetary orbits were ellipses rather than perfect circles. Exactly, and he uh-huh. also figured out that when the planets were closer to the sun, they moved faster. Hmm. And um, and he is really as a human, separate from from um, astrologers that we are. He was really the first human to push into the divine proportion, into the realms of the God, and actually come up with how God thought, if you will. I mean, that was his blasphemy. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm just remembering, I'm forgetting that you're a big Kepler fan, and you're actually the reason why Kepler College is named Kepler College, aren't that you? Is, that is true. Okay. How did that happen? <laughs> there we were sitting in a room, there were a dozen of us. and This, this was like 1991 or something? Mm, yeah, I think it was 91 or 92. Back so it's it's yeah. Seattle. It's 1991. Is it like a smoky room? Is this It's an upstairs like- room from okay. from um, Maggie's bookstore at the time was Astrology at All. Okay, famous Seattle astrology bookstore. Just every the, astrology book you ever would want. Ever. See? And they offered classes and and um and there was a group of 12 of us that Maggie invited to talk about the possibility of creating a real astrology college. Mm-hmm. And um, it was an interesting group of people, and it was a very animated discussion. And at some point in it, I said, you know, if this is going to become a reality, and I, none of us certainly know whether it can be or ever will be, but it's going to need a name. And I think that we should be careful naming it because part of this is about reclaiming astrology's place in academia. So if we did something like, like let's say, named it after a famous astrologer like Johannes Kepler, it would be like a Trojan horse. There's this college of astrology named after the icon uh, who's called the father or grandfather of modern astronomy, and it would be like an in-their-face thing, and 11 people in the room went, yes, let's do it. And it, that was it. Okay. <laughs> Not even any further discussion. Yeah, because Kepler is still like a major figure in the history of science and the history of astronomy because of his um, contributions and especially that discovery about the planetary movements and building on Galileo. Well, but not only, well, 
he and Galileo had an interesting relationship because they were technically not allowed to talk to each other because they were in, um, you know, Galileo was in the realm of the Pope. Hmm. Um, and, and Kepler was in the realm of the people who had escaped from the Pope. Uh, Rudolf was the emperor of the, uh, of the Holy Roman empire. That was part of the whole Protestant thing. And so Kepler was totally caught up in this Protestant versus Catholicism and Kepler a couple of times, though there was a big debate about that when Easter should be. And he goes, I, this is a religious question, not a scientific question. Hmm. I have nothing to do with it. Um, but they did communicate some. But the thing, um, the thing about Kepler is that he also made huge contributions to the study of music, optics. I mean, he was um, he he was definitely a Saturnian of his day. That reminds me of of Ptolemy, who did something similar, where he wrote works on like astronomy, harmonics, optics, geography, and astrology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so uh, Kepler and yeah, so Kepler though um, did make major contributions to astronomy, and he, I think he famously said something about astrology of like not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It was in Tertium Inter Venice, which actually translates something like to third man in between in the middle, Tertium, third man in the middle. And it was basically his position on astrology. Because and and the quote is very closely to when we moderners, <laughs> this is in the late 1500s, um, look at the blasphemies contained in the ancient superstitions of astrology. We should be cautioned not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So yeah, right. he, and and he hated he hated the public use of astrology. You know what he hated about it was that the um, emperors and the ruling class were basically using astrology to fight wars and to figure out when was a good time to get laid. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that it was like some things never change. And it really, and that use of astrology, that crass use of astrology to him was very offensive. Um, uh, yeah. Whereas he's like calculating the nature, discovering the nature of the universe and the like harmonic ratios of the cosmos and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but so that does place him in a position where he is a bit more skeptical, or there are some things that he's rejecting. And one of them that he wants to get rid of is the zodiac. And he creates a type of astrology that some people have tried to replicate later, where you don't use the zodiac, you just use planets and aspects. And that's the main focus. And there's echoes of this in some 20th century astrologers like Michelle Gokulin, who also. Michelle Gokulin, John Addy. Yeah, John Eddy, who did harmonics, or even to some extent, um, Richard Tarnas's approach in Cosmos and Psyche, and some of those that follow him really do emphasize planetary aspects and configurations with each other, and there doesn't seem as much emphasis yeah. on zodiacal signs. Yeah, I, I, I would say that that is an accurate representation. I would say that in a scale, I would fall toward that side. But I would never release the zodiac in this process. Um, sure. Uh, I think before we started, we had a short discussion. I mean, the fact is that the the zodiac is a man made construction. Aspect is it? Like, can I? I don't know if I can take that for granted because the zodiac, let's say the tropical zodiac, is partially based on the equinoxes and the solstices, which are objectively occurring phenomena. Which divides which divides the cycle by four. Right. But the zodiac divides it by twelve. 
Yeah, because um, that division of four, which is the seasons, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah, each season has a beginning, middle, and end. So you get three parts to each season, and it creates no, twelve no, out no, of. No, understand me. I'm not suggesting in any way that the mathematics of twelve is anything but extraordinary, magical, beautiful, and there really couldn't be a more perfect number than 12 for what this whole system is. Sure. I, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that there are not 12 constellations up there. There's 12 constellations in here because constellations are just the groupings that we've put together in our mind. Yeah, but we're not talking about constellation. We're talking about the tropical zodiac, right? Like We already know that. We're talking about a, a reference point that has to do with um, actual objectively existing mathematical phenomenon in the way that our granted, solar, solar system is Granted, set up. granted. Okay. But I am suggesting also that there's no reason why we couldn't have created a zodiac based upon 18. Yeah. That, that, that's all. And I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not suggesting like Kepler to throw that piece of the baby out with the rest of the bathwater mm -hmm. at, at all. I'm just suggesting that I think there is something to be gleaned by working that middle ground or by understanding that there is a zodiac. I mean, one of my favorite pieces of writing. Um, you know, was um, <laughs> now that I've said it, I can't remember his name. Um, who wrote the reflexive universe? Um, and was the uh, and the mathematics of meaning, and he was the patent holder on the Bell helicopter, Arthur Young. Um, and Arthur Young wrote wrote this brilliant. Uh, it was a broadside monograph. It was maybe about forty or fifty pages long, mm -hmm. and it was an unfoldment of the zodiac as a basic. Um, a metaphor from Newton's laws of, of motion. So, I mean, and again, it was brilliant. I'm not suggesting that the Zodiac is not, is not useful or that we should throw it out. I'm only suggesting that there is more to whatever the mechanism is in astrology that has to do with some very important sacred geometry, hmm. because I am of the belief that everything in our universe is architectonic is mathematical is um is patterned in its origin and when we only look at the universe through the 12 fold zodiac it's like going to it's like being a, a biologist and saying i'm only going to look at the world through a 300 power microscope and you miss that when you change powers there's all kinds of other things that you don't get to see that's that's my suggestion in this sure um and you're mentioning the geometrical thing I think is really important because I think one of the major shifts that started to happen after Kepler is that once you take the aspect out of the zodiacal framework and you start focusing primarily on degree-based aspects and you start focusing primarily on aspects as geometrical configurations, that does open up a whole other world because you're then no longer constrained by just those initial five configurations that were constrained by the zodiacal framework and you realize that there can be other sort of geometrical ratios as well. Exactly. So this is where is this where harmonics come in, or at what point are, is the concept of harmonics like relevant here? Well, I, when I when I'm teaching aspects, I'll often ask at the beginning of the class. So how many people here use aspects in their normal work in astrology? And pretty much everyone looks around, going, "Oh, it doesn't everyone?" And go, "Okay, how many people here use harmonics?" And usually. 
a few hands go up. You know, mm-hmm. if in a class of 40 or 50 people, maybe three or five or eight hands will go up. I go, okay, put your hands down. I go, here's where we're starting this class. Aspects and harmonics are identically one and the same thing. It's just a difference of languaging and it's a difference of frame of reference. If you're using an aspect, you're using harmonics. So how many people here use harmonics? And of course, then everyone raises their hand. It's kind mm-hmm. of a little bit of a forced you know, issue. But uh, I mean, a square, you divide a circle by four, that's the fourth harmonic. You know, a sextile, you're dividing a circle by six. That's the sixth harmonic. So, that's what harmonics are. And har- and, and the, the importance of harmonics is that separate from astrology, harmonics are the basis of every piece of electronic gadgetry that we have from digital cameras to computers to fo- old phonographs to, to um, radio uh, transmitters, receivers. Uh, to all music, to all written music throughout history, it's all based on harmonics. And when you realize that as astrologers, when we work with harmo- when we work with aspects, that we're really working with harmonics, it basically opens up people's visions to understanding how the mechanism and the magic of how charts work and how they actually express. What can we get a definition though? I guess there's a missing word there in that phrase, which is ratio, right? Harmonic ratios, or um, when I think of harmonics, sometimes I think of music theory or things like that. Or in other instances, we're talking about divisions of zodiacal signs. Some astrologers refer to that as harmonics. So, so mm-hmm. how do you define harmonics? Uh, I, I think a harmonic is a multiplication of a base frequency. Okay. So with 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 a harmonic you need you you need a frequency. In other words, that's something that's repetitive whether it's the earth going around the sun once a year, that's a frequency. Okay. Um with a um with, with, in music, um an orchestra tunes to the note A below middle C and that's 440 cycles a second. When we hear that note, we do not hear pure notes. We hear the note and it creates other other notes that are multiples of and divisions of that note simultaneously. So that when we hear, let's say, a cello, um, a trombone, um, a, um, um, a bassoon, uh, or a piano, they can all play the exact same note um, or a saxophone. They all can play the same frequency note, but we can tell which one is the cello and which one is the bassoon. Mm. Because even though they have the same frequency vibration, their harmonics, their overtones, the harmonics again are double the note, triple the note, quadruple the note, one and a half times the note, half of the note, a quarter. It's all the mathematics that are above and below that note that are related to it by by multiplication or division. And so um, it's those, um, the emphasis on those different harmonics that create a smooth sounding flute or violin compared to a rough sounding trumpet. And in astrology, when we are looking at charts, we are looking at the harmonics um, and the and the aspects actually show which harmonics are the most potent. Now we're not talking about what does Mars square Saturn mean, or what does Mars trine Saturn mean. 
We're talking about here's a chart filled with trines. That's a different harmonic emphasis than a chart that's filled with squares. Mm. And so this harmonic analysis actually gravitated in the 20th century, even before computers, to uh, the work of John Addy, who contributed this whole body of knowledge about harmonics. And I think that there may be some historical underpinning going back to the Germanic school, Uranian astrology, and using a harmonic wheel, sometimes called the fourth harmonic wheel, um, or the 90-degree wheel, that actually takes the zodiac out and looks at the planets in relationship to one another from a harmonic analysis. So I have no background in music theory, but I can sort of get on board with the idea that aspects represent different notes and that there's different types of notes, like musical notes on a piano, and that a square might sound like one note and then a trine might sound like a different note. And then part of the access point then for minor aspects, as you're saying, might be that there can be different variations of the same note, and that's what a minor aspect is in some way. Is that correct, or is that what you're saying? I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I, my, my friend Patrick Watson would be cringing right now because he'd be a much per, better person for this conversation about musical theory, having studied yeah. that in college and, and being a trained professional mus no, musician. The, you see, the, the, the thing is, is that with, with the ratio of notes, um, the, um, the, the flute and a violin can actually play the identical note. Right. That's the same frequency. Okay. So that's the same note that they're playing. Mm -hmm. And yet you can tell which instrument it's coming from because, because one of them, let's just use this as a, as a metaphor, one of them has more trines to that note and the other has more squares to it. That, that in music, there are harmonics that sound rough to the ear and there are harmonics that sound smooth. A trine, for example, might be considered to be, you know, um, a, like a perfect fifth in music. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, although I know people that would argue there is. Um, but there are certain um, chords. And here's an interesting thing. In geometry, a chord is a line that connects two points on a circle. So if you have a closed circle and you make any line inside of it, that's called a chord. Mm. A diameter is simply a chord that goes through the center of the circle. In astrology, when we take two points on a chart, that becomes a chord. <laughs> mm. and, and aspects are kind of like two notes that are sounding together. And those notes have a, whether, whether it's a square from, um, from Aries to Cancer or a square from Taurus to Leo, that the square has a sound to it that is tempered by what the zodiac sign is, but there's something about the actual harmonic ratio, and the ratio is simply just the mathematics between the two of them. Your ratio is in there, but something can just have harmonics. In fact, when you're doing music engineering, if you have too much amplitude, um, amplitude going through a, a you, you get feedback, and what that is is those are called spurient harmonics. Mm. They're just... You know, they're 
you know, sounds that a rocker would like to make. Yeah, or it, it makes me also think of the difference between like a harmonious sound versus something that sounds discordant exactly. or, or Ex not, not easy on the ears. Exactly. And I would suggest that like a quincunx might be considered to be a minor seventh, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, or that, that there's something discordant about it. Mm. Or, or two notes on a, on a piano, if you take two notes that are right next to each other, two keys, a black key and a white key right next to each other, and strike them hard, that sounds horrific compared to um, striking two keys with four keys in between them, that'll sound harmonious. And, and in a way, that's, it's mathematics, it's music, it's harmo harmonics, and it's also aspects. Right. Um, all right, so I want to get into aspects as divisions of a circle, but before we get there, I mm -hmm. want to backtrack to, again, the early conceptualization of aspects and the sign-based versus degree-based and how the signs were tried tied in because part yeah. of the basic premise of how aspects work is they had to do with what signs the planets were located in and there being either an affinity in the qualities of those signs or a lack of affinity. Uh, yeah. So for example, um, the primary qualities of the zodiacal signs, and here's a diagram for those watching the video version. So for example, Aries is a masculine cardinal fire sign. And so it forms a sextile with any planets in Gemini because planets in Gemini, Gemini is also a masculine sign, so they share that in common. Right. And as a result of the commonality between those two signs, they're able to form some sort of relationship or a planet in Aries can form a trine with a planet in Leo because Aries and Leo are both fire signs. So that's partially how the aspects were set up originally was Agreed. partially yeah. due to that background. So then um, the lack of aspect or the aversion aspects are, for example, uh, planets in Cancer and planets in Sagittarius share no commonalities. So Cancer is a water sign that's feminine and cardinal, whereas Sagittarius is a fire sign which is masculine and mutable. So it shares none of those three qualities in common and therefore that lack of any affinity or commonality in those signs is what set it up so that there was no aspect or no relationship between planets in those two signs. Agreed. So this is part of the conceptual structure underlying that made makes the major aspects a little bit different because it has part of that backdrop. Um, but also what happened then when Kepler came along and he rejected the zodiac is he started focusing on aspects and focusing on aspects as divisions of a circle and all the different ways that you can cut up a 360 degree degree circle into different um, portions, just like a pie. Yeah, yeah. But you know, the thing here, of course, where I assume you're going to in a moment, is that although there there seems to be, and I and I concur with this observation. That two planets that are, have a relationship, uh, an aspect relationship by sign, have a relationship, whether they're close orb tight, tightly, um, whether the harmonic uh, analysis would bring them very close together. Um, let, use, let's use the Aries Leo um, thing. Mm -hmm. You have a planet at um, 15 Aries and a planet at 15. Um, Leo, mm -hmm. um, it's important. First of all, they're trine by sign. They're both fire signs, mm -hmm. so that gives them some smooth, um, you know, connective, you know, points uh, in in their relationship with one another. Um, 
And we even have developed a system now of saying how close is that aspect in that sign so that two planets at 15 degrees would have a zero degree orb or would be partile because they're at the same degree number. Mm -hmm. Now, if you have that same planet, um, uh, one at 15 degrees and one at 29 degrees, um, that still has that resonance by sign. Right. But by orb, it's now pushing 14, 15 degrees out. And so it may not be as focused. Now, here's where we have to go with this. And that is what happens if we have a planet at 29 degrees of Aries and a planet at zero degrees of Leo. Mm. 29 degrees of Aries and zero degrees of Leo, well, they are trine by sign. By sign. But by degree, they could be within a degree of being square. Right. And so here is the, the, the problem when we try to juxtapose these two different ways of looking at things. Mm -hmm. and, and I am, for one, believe that both ways work. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, and, and so, I, again, I don't throw the zodiac away, um, but, um, but when we move into the realm of um, certain other harmonics, um, see, here's another thing about harmonics that has to do with physics, and that is, it was, it was um, Pythagoras who basically said all is har harmony. Pythagoras said the universe consists of vibration, period. All, all, all is number. All is number, all is vibration, all that all vibrations occur in sympathy with other vibrations. Remember, Pythagoras gave us the scale that we have, and he took a string and stretched it taut and pulled it up and let it go, and it went bye. And then he took half that string. And did the same thing. And it went, and he realized it was the same note, just an octave higher. You know, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, do, do. And that when you have these two notes that are the same note, but an octave apart, that if you half the string, you double the frequency. So Pythagoras basically gave us the idea that everything in the universe is vibration that can be measured by number, and that all vibrations are sympathetic with other vibrations. But then he also noticed that when you take that string and you pluck it, that there, you watch it really carefully, and it helps if you've had a little wine or smoked a little something, and you, you can see that it's, the string isn't just going like this. The string is wiggling in all different ways. You can do it when you look in a piano. You know, you just hit a bunch of notes and you look and you, and the, and you can see the strings are, are moving more complexly than just simply up and down, that multiple notes are being created. And so physicists and musicologists or musicians know that, that you can measure a note by what they call the fundamental. The fundamental is play a note. Hmm, that note consists of a certain frequency, how many times a second it impinges on our ear. Um, so that, that, again, A above middle C is 440 cycles a second. And so we hear that note, but we're also hearing all kinds of harmonies along with it, although the note itself 
is called the fundamental, and that's the strongest. So here's how this relates to astrology, because when we have a planet at a particular location in the zodiac, that becomes the fundamental. That becomes the singular note that is the loudest, that is the strongest. And then the second harmonic, which astrologically we call the opposition, is the second most fundamental or basic or loudest. And then the trine, one-third of a circle, and then the square, one-quarter of a circle. And the physicist will tell us that as the harmonic gets higher and higher, a sextile, one-sixth of a circle, a quincunx, five-twelfths, twelfth harmonic, five-twelfths of a circle, as the harmonic gets higher, the potency of the aspect gets lower. And in many systems, this is why we automatically use wider orbs for the lower harmonic aspects. We give a wider allowance to um, a conjunction than we do to a sextile. I mean, is this not then setting up uh, validity of the distinction between minor and major aspects, though? Well, it is to a point okay. because... So let's 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 just throw out some rough orbs and and you know I, I, whatever orb anyone uses, astrologers have their own ways of doing it. Well, you know. and I've always, I've had a theory about that is I think that the complete lack of agreement on orbs historically over the past thousand years and especially in modern times is because the planets come into configuration as soon as they move into a sign based aspect and it just gets more intense the closer it gets by degree. To exact, and I think that's why the orbs are so fuzzy because it's really in a major aspect already. As soon as they're configured by sign, I mean. That being said, there is still something to, you know, uh, out of sign aspects that still works for degree based aspects, and there is some some range there. Yeah, and 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 again, you have that planet at one degree, you know, and it hits kapow as soon as the planet changes signs because it's so close an orb. I, right. I, I don't I don't disagree with any of that, but. Just, I mean, we all have kind of rough rules of where we make our own breaking point of, uh, I, I, and, I, and I don't think there is such a thing as a cutoff point. I mean, uh, I, I remember Noel once saying um, in a class, someone said, so what's the widest you'd ever use? What's the widest orb you'd ever use for a conjunction? And Noel said, 360 degrees if I need it. <laughs> now, okay. it, it was said sarcastically, but there's an element of, of of truth that orbs are sloppy and when people some people use very tight orbs of two degrees or three degrees and in my mind they've never done a chart of a human then because obviously there's some influence wider and even by sign mm -hmm. but here's the issue but that being said that one of the points that you're making that's really important is that um generally speaking people that work with minor aspects use a wider orb allowance for major aspects and tighter orbs for minor aspects right no, well, largely speaking, but I think that's a mistake. So okay. let, let me. Um, the, the, that that's part of the problem because when we use when we use a smaller orb for what you call minor aspects, 
we automatically delegate less importance to them and we miss what they might be bringing us. Let, uh, let me be specific. We here. should come up with a name for a better name that you like better for minor aspects so that's not Ptolemaic. I liked in our previous Uranus discussion, we started getting into like a Newtonian versus uh, like quantum, quantum aspect. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a cool name. Like, if I don't know. Well, I, I sometimes referred to them as physical and metaphysical aspects hmm. be because it seems like the 12 fold zodiac. Um, does impinge upon the physical realm. Okay. Obviously, squares, oppositions, and, and conjunctions more so than trines and sextiles, but they still have they still have physical manifestation. Where my observation is that the metaphysical aspects don't. But this now then says, what do we do with the semi-squares and sesquisquares? Right, because they technically would be minor aspects. But again, anyone who's worked with them, anyone who's done, um, you know, cosmobiology or Uranian astrology, you know, understands that there is nothing minor about a semi-square or sesquisquare. Okay. So, but regardless, here's here here's the the the, the, the spread. Okay, hold on, but for because I think that's going to be a long. Can I make a joke really quickly about branding? Like branding is really important. Um, somebody was talking about the nodes recently and how they preferred. The mean node, but they it just doesn't have a very good name. Where everyone uses the true node because that sounds like way cooler. I the like true the node. happy node. Yeah, well, somebody <laughs> if somebody wanted to promote the mean node, they just need to come up with a better name for it, like the freedom node or like the cool node or something like that. And I think that may be a similar issue here if you want to rebrand minor aspects. I don't think Ptolemaic non Ptolemaic doesn't have a very good ring to it because then it's still <laughs> comparing it to something else. Mm -hmm. um, but I know you've written a book called Quantum Astrology, and that's kind of your thing. And so that, I don't know, yeah, that has a certain yeah. ring to it, quant Maybe. quantum aspects. Maybe. Okay. Um, Continue, sorry. I'm, I'm, liking, I'm, I'm liking metaphysical aspects. Okay, metaphysical aspects. Okay. Um, by the way, that book, which is out of print, which needs to be rewritten before it ever reappears in print, the full title of it was Quantum Astrology, Essays on the Physics of Metaphysics. Mm, that's a good title. Um, uh, you actually have a whole DVD, which you reminded me of, and I forgot about when I did the mo movies for yeah. Astrologers episode a few months ago, and I found it like literally days after that. But is that still around and available? It's called Quantum Astrology? Yeah, it is. Okay. Um, I think it might be orderable um, through through Gaia. I think Gaia, Gaia, Gaia TV, Gaia owns it, I think. Now. Okay. Um. So when you're using orbs, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to ask you to do this for me. Uh, what, what I want you to do is we're going to start with the conjunction and just give me a sense of under normal circumstances, whatever that might be, what's the widest orb that you would use typically? And I know there's always reasons to use less or more, but for a conjunction, just give me a number that you would use for an orb. I mean, I, I, I would look at it by sign if they're in the, anywhere in the same sign they're conjunct, and if by degree, I would say um, the most intense. There's going to be ranges of like one degree, three degrees, maybe ten degrees is is something I'll put in solar fire just to know when it's okay. Really so let's work conjunct. with the ten degree. That's kind of the number I'm looking for. Yeah. And 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 incidentally, your little range thing there, I I agree with that. And when I'm working with aspects, I, I do the same. I mean, mm -hmm. it's a sliding scale. And that and and just because two planets are eleven degrees doesn't mean that they're not in some way connected. Right. Okay. So let's say ten degrees on on a conjunction. Mm. Opposition. 
Um, maybe the same, honestly. Okay, square or no, let's go trine next. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm still. It's like by sine intensity by a degree is the most three is the next level, and then yeah, maybe up to up to ten, honestly. Okay, square same. Uh, yeah. Sextile. Um, yeah, I guess so. Maybe a little bit tighter for a sextile. A little bit tighter. Yeah. Um, and do you ever use quincunxes? Um, no, I don't. I just note that the planets are not in any relationship if they're in signs of aversion, that they have a lack of a aspect or configuration. Huh. Well, most normal people <laughs> would say 10 conjunction, 10 opposition, right. maybe eight on a trine or, or an eight on a square, maybe mm. 10 all the way down. For sextile, many people would jump down to three or four degrees. That if two planets are much wider than that, they you know it's still the sign thing is there, mm -hmm. but to be you know a, a an aspect they would want it to be more like you know three four degrees five degrees, and then for a quincunx many people would want it to be like two or three degrees. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's pretty typical. Well, that's what I think. That's what Bill Turney gives in Dynamics of Aspect Analysis, which okay. is one of my first books that deals with both major aspects and minor aspects. Okay, so my 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 approach to this is that aspects are in fact a an artifact an artifact of of harmonics and that knowing the lower the harmonic the louder the note would lead me to want to apply as the harmonic goes up first harmonic conjunction sixth harmonic sextile as as the number goes up that would cause us to um, narrow the orbs hmm. so that a conjunction would have a, a, a much larger allowance, mm -hmm. whereas a sextile would have less and a quincunx or a semi-sextile would even have less. Sure. By that standard, one would need to use, and I'm saying by that standard, and I'm not selling that standard for to you, Although we'll get there, <laughs> maybe I'll be converted no, at the end I'm of this. We looking. still got like an hour or so. Um, but by that standard, um, when people say, "Well, what aspect should I use?" You know, yes, I use quintiles. What kind of orb do you give them? Two degrees because they're a minor aspect. And I would say, if you've been ever been fishing, you'll know that the size of the net that you use determines what fish you'll never see. Hmm. If you're if you're out net fishing for tuna. You'll, you'll never even know that there's an anchovy in the ocean hmm. because they'll always slip through the net. And so if you're using an orb that's so tight, you may never gain the familiarity with what it is. And so here's for a quintile, I would because a quintile is a fifth harmonic, my rule of thumb says that for the fifth harmonic, you need to use an orb that's equal to or less than what you use for the fourth harmonic and equal to or greater than what you use for a sixth harmonic. So for those people who use four degrees or uh, on, on a sextile mm -hmm. and eight degrees on a square, by this way of envisioning aspects as harmonics, you have to use five degrees or somewhere in there for a quintile or you'll never give them the same potential weight of importance 
and therefore you'll never see enough of them to make any judgment as to how they work. Mm. So you'd use a five degree orb for a quintile. Uh, I vary. I mean, just like with just like with my conjunctions, I'm mm. I am not orb anal. <laughs> okay. um, but but yeah, and, and I have various um, in solar fire. As I I know you know you can set up different aspect um, sequences. And I have about 30 or 40 of them that I've saved for research purposes and uses. But I do, um, I do have one where I have, um, where I use five degrees for quintiles and biquintiles. Mm. But then we get into an interesting situation because a quincunx is 150 degrees. Okay. At 150 degrees, the, if, let's say you're using four degrees on a quincunx. There are some people who use a wide enough orb on that. But a four-degree orb on a quincunx would have um, a 146-degree aspect as a quincunx with a four-degree orb. Okay. However, a biquintile is 144 degrees so 146 degrees would be a biquintile with a two-degree orb. In other words, there's an overlap between the two-fifths, the five-twelfths, five quink, twelve unks, quink unks, five-twelfths, okay. and the triceptile at 154 degrees. Mm. It turns out that the 150-degree point, the, z- the zero-degree Virgo point, um, if we're leaning on the illusion of the zodiac, <laughs> kidding. Um, that 150 degree point is the least stable point in the zodiac. Mm. Why? Because it has a fifth harmonic, um, six degrees less than, and it has a seventh harmonic, the septile, four degrees after. In other words, the halfway point between the two fifths, that's the biquintile, mm. And the three-sevenths, that's the triceptile, the halfway point is 149 degrees. And I had long discussions with Marion March when, when Marion was alive, who was a quincunx fan, fanatic. She studied them, worked with them, knew them. And it was her belief, and I've heard this from other people who work a lot with quincunxes, that whether they're applying or separating, the 149-degree quincunx is always stronger than the 151-degree quincunx, both one degree off, one degree orb. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is that the quincunx typically wants to jump to a lower, more fundamental, lower harmonic. It wants to jump to the fifth harmonic or the seventh harmonic, as it would musically. Mm-hmm. And so it... it and and most people who use quincunxes widely um, use most people use the same word. If you ask a hundred astrologers who use quincunxes, what word would you use for a quincunx? Most of them would say, "Oh, it, adjustment." I mean, other words would come up, you know, annoying, um, um, uncomfortable, uh, bothersome, irresolvable. But but most of them, for the first word, would say adjustment because it takes like that Virgo. You you try to adjust it and it's too loud, and then you adjust it the other way and you can't hear it, mm-hmm. and you and you can't get it quite right mm-hmm. because it's jumping from the two fifths to the three sevenths. It's totally unstable. Mm. Interesting. So so just back to the orb thing for a second. I typically use about five degrees for my quincunx, 
and I typically use four degrees for my sextile because that has to be theoretically less than because it's a higher harmonic. Because, uh, yeah, quincunx is five and a No, we haven't gotten six. to the quincunx. Quintile. quintile. Maybe I misspoke. Okay. Sorry. For the quintile, mm. I would use five degrees. Okay. For the sextile, which is the sixth harmonic, I would narrow it down to about four degrees. Mm. Okay. If for the quincunx, I'm using three degrees, that's going to step on the other biquintile and triceptile. So I typically look at a chart with its with with what I call the the major aspects. Um but I include the semi-square and sesquisquare in that run. Mm -hmm. And then I took a take a completely different look at it, the same chart, and I look at it with the quintile series, that's the one fifth and two fifths the 72 and 144, mm -hmm. along with the septile series that I use a two and a half degree Orban. The computer doesn't care. You can set it for two and a half. You can set it for, you know, anything you want. Mm -hmm. um, but that way I have a little bit of a tighter, I, I, I can, my, my rationale is consistent because I'm tightening the orb the higher the harmonic. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'll often, for research purposes, use six degrees on a quintile and three degrees on the septile series. And again, the septile series is the septile at 51 degrees plus, the biceptile at 102 degrees plus, and the triceptile at 154 degrees plus. Okay. And, um, and it's extraordinary when you begin to open up your eyes and see how these aspects resonate in charts that you already know, that you already use. Uh, someone told me a story once that Mark Robertson um, did a, um, a a talk at some astrology conference many, many years ago before Cassius Clay became Muhammad Ali. And he did a chart and it was an unnamed chart and the group interpreted it. And, it, and, and he finally put the, you know, Cassius Clay's name on it. And and it was at the end of the class, someone realized, hey, there's no Mars in the chart. Hmm. And he said, yeah, I left it out on purpose. <laughs> that without Mars in the chart, it still makes sense. Hmm. Without, without looking at a half squares, semi-squares and sesquisquares, without looking at quincunxes and semi-sextiles, without looking at quintile series and septile series, you know, chart makes sense. But if there's a tool that can quickly help you see another layer of magic that you're otherwise missing, that's that's a technique that I will use. Mm, okay. Um, well, let's get into some charts. But first, before we get there, yeah. to round out some of the historical component, um, it's really interesting that after Kepler, I think it was within a century or so, we already start seeing the minor aspects coming into the tradition. And William Lilly, actually, in the middle of the what 16th century, in yeah. 16, 17th, 17th century. century, in 1647, in Christian astrology, which is the first major English language textbook on right, astrology. And that's only about 50 years after Kepler wrote about the quintile. 
Right. And there's an interesting story there that we can come back to in a moment. Okay, so let me just yeah. read the quote where he's like introducing aspects and talking about how to read an ephemeris. And at one point he has this digression where um he's talking about quintiles and he says we seldom use more aspects than the conjunction sextile square trine and opposition to thereof one late kepler a learned man hath added some new ones as follows and then he gives a list of like the minor aspects he says a semi-sextile mm-hmm. um, consisting of 30 degrees a quintile consisting of 72 degrees the tredicile and the semi see the the tredicile is it's 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 like a tridecile. Mm. A tridecile is a is is actually a sesquiquintile. In other words, a quintile is one fifth of a circle. Okay. So half of a quintile would be a tenth of a circle, a decile. Okay. A tredecile at one hundred and eight degrees is seventy two plus half of a. It's like a sesqui square, except it's like a it's a sesquiquintile. So yeah, Kepler also introduced that. And what are the other ones? He mentions the quincunx, the quincunx and biquintile. And the biquintile. Okay, 144 degrees, 150 degrees. It's interesting that he doesn't mention, he mentions the the um, the quintile and a half, the tredecile, the three-tenths, mm-hmm. but he doesn't mention the decile, which would be 36 degrees. Interesting. Right. So he says, he ends this section basically saying, I only acquaint you with these um, that finding them anywhere you may apprehend their meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's kind of telling you how to read an ephemeris because I guess other astrologers or ephemeris makers must be using them. I think he does return to it later and starts using them in the context of natal astrology or something like that or mm-hmm. pri- primary directions. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that early though that Kepler's work, you know, similar to Ptolemy, where Kepler was a major astronomer who made major um, changes and uh, influence the history of astronomy so significantly that also his astrological work ended up influencing things as a result of that. Immediately. In, right. in fact, there was, uh, there was a book a number of years ago, I want to say the title was something Urania, and it was a whole collection. Um, it was a British publication, and it was a whole collection, a scholarly collection um, of a number of essays around the idea of the sky god and Urania. And for some reason, one of the one of the articles in that was this um, correspondence from a doctor, a, a physical doctor, mm-hmm. who was a contemporary of Johannes Kepler. Um, and, and the doctor wrote to Kepler, you know, something like, who the hell do you think you are? You know, changing Ptolemy's aspects. Okay. These aspects that have been in use for, uh, you know, uh, 1500 years or however many years, uh, for whatever. And, you know, and, and it's like, and you come along and, and, you know, what makes you think that, that these, that, that these work? Mm-hmm. And Kepler's response, and this is available, and it's, um, and so I've read this many times, not recently, but, um, Kepler's response was fascinating because his response was on March 8th, 15, blah, 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 blah. I don't remember the date, but on this particular date, there was a quintile between Mars and Saturn. I verified this myself and later um, had Tuco Bra. Um, um, some people say Tycho, but I was trained in Danish to say Tuco Bra. 
um, that that Tycho Brahe or Tuco Bra um, actually um, noted this quintile. So this was, a, in other words, there was no not even any way of knowing that there was a real aspect unless you went out and cited it and then had proof from someone else. You know, he said on this date there was a coronation of such and such a duke that had to be canceled because there was a storm. Mm. Okay. That proved it. So he had sort of like an empirical justification for some of the aspects. It wasn't just um, abstract for him. That's correct. But the way, but but that particular empirical observation, as if that proved it, was to me totally intriguing. Mm. There was a storm that day. Oh, and there were no other aspects in the sky that day. So it had to have been the quintile between um, Mars and Saturn. Okay. In- interesting observation. But yeah, apparently he did look for empirical, you know, it wasn't just all um, conceptual. Right. Um, it just, it makes me think of like that. There's an archetype of that um, astrologer, and to some extent it lives in every astrologer, but that comes along that has the scientific background that sees that there's something to astrology and they want to take the best parts that seem legitimate to them and like get rid of the parts that don't. And there's like the scientist version of that, which there's there's Kepler, the famous scientist version, which is Kepler, which is Ptolemy was doing that to some extent as well. Um, he was taking the parts that made sense to him and sort of repackaging them as a system. Michel Gokulan. Gokulan is another. Yeah, it's a really good. Percy modern. Seymour is another one. Okay. Uh, who wrote um, the scientific basis of astrology and another couple of books? He was a um, an astronomer, professor of astronomy in England. I can't remember the exact credentials. But he wrote this thing, and basically it was, uh, I've discovered astrology. It's based upon magnetics, and you know, and it was like this is like a brilliant thing that I've discovered. Mm. It's like Columbus discovering the new world. No, it was there. You didn't need to discover it for it to exist, right? Uh, or or Michelle Gokland's like early 1990. I think it was 1990 or 1991 book Neo Astrology, where oh, yeah. he was yeah. putting forward the idea that we. Get rid of everything in astrology except those things that can be validated by statistical evidence, yeah. and that he had only been able to validate some things, like the Gokulin sectors where Mars rising or culminating, or other planets rising or culminating, would yeah. indicate yeah. like eminent sports athletes or things yeah. like that. Yeah, and I think that those tools and those things, I think we'll, we will see more of those as computers have more and more of a creative role with new generation of astrologers who are coming up with the computing cap- capabilities along with the interest in the metaphysical side of astrology but that doesn't mean that one replaces the other mm-hmm. although for 30 years or more I've been convinced that someday there's going to be this major announcement from MIT or Caltech that graduate students in some you know field of um, astrophysiology, whatever, have discovered um, you know a, a new form of low frequency electromagnetic vibrations that instead of being measured in hertz or megahertz or you know instead of being measured in trillions of cycles a second like like light waves are measured in cycles per century or millennium or millennia. And that, of course, this has nothing to do with astrology, but there seems to be a correlation between these low-frequency rhythms and some of the planetary cycles. Right. But it has nothing to do with astrology. Yeah. I, I mean, that was always some something Sh- Robert Schmidt always said was like, someday some scientist is going to come out and they're going to find some small piece of astrology that can be verified 
empirically and scientifically, and the headline's going to read like astrology proved and or legitimized, but then it's going to be just one small piece of that, yeah. like nine, yeah. and the rest of the ninety nine percent will be left out. Yeah. Um, yes. So, but anyways, I, you know, there's that that archetype exists in the astrological tradition and comes along periodically. We're still kind of waiting for another modern version of that that will create sort of a unified field theory that includes astrology in the same way right. that that um, Ptolemy did um, for his time period, which is eventually invalidated because um, all of those are sort of temporary in some sense, just based on what the current scientific understanding of the world is. But there's some um, part of that archetype that I think lives in every astrologer because every astrologer has this impulse to focus on the things that seem to work and make the most sense to them and to kind of like have rationales for the things that they don't think work or that don't make sense to them for some reason mm -hmm. and therefore sort of um, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater by keeping some parts of astrology but also rejecting some parts. Yeah. 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 Um, all right. So one thing that I wanted to transition into talking about with modern aspect theory is how it was kind of reconstituted in modern times in the 20th century through the work of Dane Rudyard and through the ideas of synodic cycles between planets and divisions of that circle that you you have two planets and each of those planets forms a relationship of some sort as they move around their relative orbits and eventually come back and conjoin each other and then start moving away from each other and eventually oppose each other on opposite sides of the zodiac or form squares or the other easiest things. way for most people to understand what you're talking about although most astrologers should mm -hmm. is basically looking at the new moon full moon cycle yeah the lunation cycle the lunation cycle and then to understand that although with the lunation cycle we can actually see it because the moon grows and and shrinks, if you will, through that 28, 29 day um, cycle, mm -hmm. that every pair of planets has that exact same um, dance that they do um, um, with them. Some are more complicated because of retrogradation, um, but that that the Jupiter-Saturn cycle, that 20-year cycle, is basically the same thing as the um, new moon to new moon, um, and that those cycles themselves not only seem to have some significance in interpretation in a natal chart, but also have great import in understanding the mundane cycles. This, of course, is uh, the basis of most of Rick Tarnas's um, historical reconstruction um, is based upon those cycles of the outer planets. Mm -hmm. um, but Dane Rudyard's work, basically, even with the phases of the moon, and then looking at that through any pair of planets, we can extrapolate the same idea. Yeah, it's a big, it, it's a, that, yeah, yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, not pinnacle, but it's the foundational work of all modern aspect theories, the idea that um, aspects represent uh, cycles between planets and different phases in the cycle or the relationship between two planets in the same way that the lunation cycle is the um, primary archetype or, or reference point for um, not just the sun and moon's relationships, but all planetary cycles. Yeah. You know, um, you, you may know this, other people may not, but I'm a tremendous Buckminster Fuller fan, student. Uh, uh, I've read pretty much everything that that guy wrote, and he wrote a ton, including some of his mathematical stuff, uh, a two-volume work um, 
um, uh, which was basically uh, explorations in the geometry of thinking, mm. and um, and and a lot of that book is is almost um, unapproachable, but there's some fascinating things in it. And somewhat one place in that book, a lot of it's done by numbering sections where he has axioms and corollaries. And in one place he says, the universe, he, he calls it universe. He never uses the before, un, before universe. And, and, he, and he wrote, universe consists of frequency and angle. Mm. Universe consists of frequency and angle. And I always found that totally fascinating and then several years later, in another part of the other volume of this, these same of the same book, volume two, in just as enigmatically he writes, standing by itself, angle is subcyclic. Hmm. Angle is subcyclic, and in a way, whenever you have any two pairs of planets, you have a cycle. It is uh, kind of accepted in a lot of the esoteric traditions that time is actually the result of the revolution of one body around a center. Right. And so if you have the idea that the universe consists of frequency and angle, and that angle is subcyclic, all of a sudden we have astrology in yeah. my mind. Yeah, and I think that's really important because that's my ask, my access point as a traditional leaning astrologer and as somebody that primarily uses the major aspects and thinks that they they do stand on their own as special and unique and important. This is the the looking at aspects as cyclical or relationships between planets would be my my access point of how minor aspects could still make sense in that context because if you um you know, take it outside of the zodiacal context, not not entirely, but instead of focus instead on what is the relationship between two planets and there being different types of important turning points during the course of that cycle of the synodic relationship or cycle between two planets, then there are a bunch of different um, turning points in that cycle that could be important for different reasons. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's probably the to me what seems like the most conceptually interesting way to approach minor aspects. It still bugs me lens. when you say minor. I want to okay. use me metaphysical. But the problem with metaphysical, every, everyone has a, has a little bit of a problem there. Because what we call it, the other one's physical? Like it's still, it's referencing back to something still. Yeah, yeah because, physical. Be because the physical stuff is based upon numbers that are real mm. and that are based upon uh, platonic, the, the platonic solids, mm. which basically, you know, um, the uh, squares and trines uh, fall into that category. I don't know. What's what's the problem though with because if even if we do the myth in that context of synodic cycles and we talk about the um, the lunation cycle as the archetypal synodic cycle of the entire universe and of all um, yeah. relationships between planets, you know, built into that we do have four of the major aspects of conjunction, which is the starting point: the sun and moon together at a new yeah. moon. Yeah. We have the first quarter where the the moon is. Lit up, it's half lit up, half of it's dark, half of it's light, and that's at the 90 degree, the opening waxing 90 degree square. Right. Then we have the opposition when the moon is full and is at its brightest, right. and that's 180 degrees. Then we have the waning square at 90. 
it's like right there is a is f- what three or four of our, our major aspects right and that's why i would tend to call them physical because they're based upon a real perception you can see it in the real world it connects with other things in the sensible world mm-hmm. where as soon as we move into the realm of five you know the 90 degree angle the cross the cardinal cross you know connected with saturn connected with that which is you know that with the 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 gate between the metaphysical and the physical mm-hmm. um but when you go into the into the realm of five all of a sudden it is not physical you know the fi- the 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 um the fivefold pattern is connected with the feminine earth religions you know the the, the um tradition of you know of the of the, um witchery of of wizards of uh um of wicca you know the all of that is based on non-physical it's metaphysical it's and and of course it's totally fascinating that when we look at the synodic cycle um between um venus and the earth we actually do come up with that grand quintile. Mm. Um, and even more fascinating is the connection between the five-pointed star as the only constructible geometry. I say constructible, meaning you can make it with a compass and a straight edge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the five-pointed star is the only constructible geometry that can get us to the uh, golden mean, the divine proportion which our boy Johannes Kepler said was the ratio that God used to create like from like. It's a great quote. Mm. And, and in fact, he said there were two gems. There were two gems in, in geometry. There was uh, the law of the um, hypotenuse of the right triangle, um, Pythagoras, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, that he said was a diamond. And the law of the mean and the extreme which is the golden mean, um, was an emerald. Those were the two gems um, in, in geometry. Okay. And, and, the, and the magic of the golden mean is that it is inherent in all forms of life. Um, you know, it's not only the spiraling arms of the Milky Way galaxy and the definition of the spiral of the Nautilus shell, but it's also the shape of the ra- the ratios in the human body. Um, the, the segments of bones are based upon the golden mean or the divine uh, proportion. The Egyptians knew this. The Greeks knew this. The architecture of the stonemasons, their great secret was using the divine proportion in all the windows and doors and floors and all the great cathedrals so that when you stand in them in Europe and you go, something here is pretty powerful— it's this ratio that um, Leonardo da Vinci illustrated an entire book on about the aesthetics of beauty. The question then is, is beauty something that is natural or is it something that we create depending upon our culture, our society? And the um, Renaissance artists basically came up with the idea, no, the, the golden mean is the source of beauty. Albrecht Dewar's um, uh, human portraits and his and his figures of Jesus all have divine proportion from the width to the heights to the eyes, the length and the width to the nose, and so on and so on. So what does this have to do with the quintile? The quintile, the five-pointed star, makes diagonals. And, um, and in a five-pointed star, 
every line on that five-pointed star, which is actually showing the five, you know, the, the, the five points on the grand quintile, they each intersect one another by dividing each line into two segments. So that if you can just imagine that five-pointed star, every line crosses two other lines, dividing every line into a shorter and longer segment. And the shorter to the longer ratio is exactly that 1.62, well, actually 1.618, actually 1.618033 dot, 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 dot. It's one of those that goes forever. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, this perfect aesthetic, this thing of beauty, this ratio of, of, of the perfect proportion that is also the basic building block in the human body, we get structure in our cells from something called um, uh, endoplasmic reticulum. They're, they're, they're microtubules. That's the word I was looking for, microtubules. And it used to be thought that they were the skeleton system of, this, of the cell. They're only one, well, they're several molecules wide, but they're a particular protein that has five molecules, then eight, five, then eight, five, then eight, hmm. and five-eighths is basically the golden mean. It's the, you know, it's the the numbers in the Fibonacci number series basically get closer and closer and closer to the golden mean. Every plant has a ratio in it that botanists use to classify plants called phylotaxis. And it's how many spirals that the plant makes in order to have a perpendicular over a bud so that it's not just opposite sides all phylotaxis are divine proportion Fibonacci numbers: three over uh, five over three, eight over five, thirteen over eight, etc. So here's the crazy thing: it takes Earth three hundred and sixty-five point two five days to four days to go around the sun. It takes Venus two hundred and twenty-four and a half days to go around the sun. Three sixty-five divided three sixty-five and a quarter divided by twenty-two and a two twenty-four and a half is 1.62. That Venus is the golden mean to the earth. And what does it stand for? It stands for beauty. It's the feminine. It's the goddess. And it's not like the Saturnian, um, magnetic, Martian, physical realms of astrology. Mm -hmm. Venus and the moon are both arguably metaphysical. Mercury goes both ways. But the other planets arguably impinge upon the physical realm. And so the five-pointed aspect, the five-pointed star, is basically when you look at that at a in a chart, you see something that otherwise falls through the cracks. You see, you see the creativity. You see the magic of the soul. You see that which is not physical, but you'll never predict a marriage or a divorce or a something physical based upon someone's nativity of having a lot of quintiles. Mm. And uh, is that connected with, because Venus also makes a pentagram, a five-pointed star through its retrograde cycles? Well, that's what I meant, what I called the star of Venus. That's, mm -hmm. that, that, that is actually tied to the fact of the, um, uh, of the ratio of five to eight, five, you know, because it makes five conjunctions, five uh, synodic conjunctions, heliocentric uh, conjunctions uh, with Earth five every eight years, mm -hmm. eight divided by five 
you know, is the golden mean. It's one point two. Well, it get it's one point six, one point six one five, one point six two five. So that'd be really interesting then, if the reason why Venus signifies beauty, uh, for example, or aesthetic appeal, that which is that we perceive as aesthetically appealing, ultimately boils down to a no- numerical reason. That's exactly what I'm saying. Is and there's no way to prove it, but <laughs> it's like all the planets are. In some way, architectonic of some basic number, something. Right. And so, Venus making that aspect to Earth, being in that exact ratio to Earth, Venus being the golden mean proportion to Earth, and it representing everything that historically we've always ascribed to the golden mean mm-hmm. beauty, aesthetic perfection. You know, um, if a photographer knows that if they want to have a subject that's perfect in a picture, you don't want it halfway between the top and the bottom, you want it closer to two thirds. Why? Because two thirds is already closer to the golden mean because one plus one equals two. Two plus one equals three, two thirds. Mm-hmm. Three plus two equals five. You know, and you keep going down that five eighths and and so on, um, and you get to all those things that are beautiful. Um, it's it's kind of crazy, but when you start looking at the quintiles in someone's chart, mm-hmm. you all of a sudden have a picture of the non physical dimension of where this person's creativity, where their magic, where their charisma. Where And you see strong quintiles in charts of artists and poets and philosophers uh, um, and, and, and just even people with strong, strong charisma. Oddly enough, comedians again and again and again um, show powerful quintile configurations, configurations meaning more than just two planets, one quintile or biquintile the other but a third forming patterns that are on that five-pointed star. Then you see them in charts like John Cleese and Groucho Marx and Charlie Chaplin and and um, Harpo Marx and Woody Allen. And uh, I mean, on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, and I know we've kind of slipped into the chart interpretation. I don't know whether we did yeah, it prematurely. I know you have some charts you wanted to show to demonstrate. Do you want to look at those right now? Do you want to take a little break? Or how, where, I'm where happy you to look like? at those right now. What I would like to do first is just say a few words about the septiles. Because okay. the charts that I have, I have a handful of charts where we can look at them with the normal regular aspects. Many of them will be charts that we've looked at that we might already be familiar with. And then I have a different version of that chart only showing the quintiles and septiles. And some of them are pretty shocking just by the, 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 uh, by what comes across. Hmm. But the, and the reason why I focus on the quintiles and septiles in, in my research and in, even in my consulting practice is that they are the lower harmonics, which theoretically are more fundamental. I mean, anyone who's done any work in um, in harmonic analysis, in vibrational astrology, which is David Cochran's rebranding, if you will, of John Addy's work, um, knows that there's no end to what harmonic you can use. You can use the 125th harmonic, the 375th harmonic. doesn't matter because it's like an oscilloscope. As you tune it, you'll get certain frequencies where all of a sudden it'll go... 
And all of a sudden, you'll hit these points where everything seems to be in tune with everything else. Mm. Now, that certainly has taken the Zodiac out of the picture. Mm. But I think that we will find that there's something there that is incredibly powerful that will feed into whatever it is that, that we do. But the reason in particular I focus on the fives and the sevens is that, um, is, is that most of us use aspects that go up to the 12th harmonic. Most people, um, obviously not um, strict Hellenistic astrologers who will not use the 12th harmonic, they're basically, you're basically using the first, second, third, sixth harmonic. First, second, first, second, third, fourth, and sixth. That's the five major. So uh, the first is conjunction, second harmonic is opposition because there's two two points. The third harmonic is trine because there's three grand points. Trine, three points. Grand trine, and I have some actually. I meant to put some diagrams up that show those aspect patterns because that might be really helpful in this part of the discussion. Yeah. Let me see if I can locate those. That's a yod, which actually we should get into. Well, the yod is of very particular importance because. Again, people who have done a lot of natal work and who have looked at yods just know how strong or how powerful they are. Yeah, so there we have a, um, in effect, what we would call a grand trine, mm. but it's really just the third harmonic with planets at the tips of that third harmonic. Okay, so when you're talking about harmonic, you're talking about three points. And talking about the circle divided by three. Yeah, okay. Versus like a grand square, which is the circle divided by four. That's a fourth harmonic. And so the square is connected with the fourth harmonic. Um, now hold that just for a second, because in the fourth harmonic, we also have oppositions. But if you hated fractions, you're going to hate this. Hmm. <laughs> because a fourth harmonic has the, the fourth is one quarter of a circle. One quarter is the fourth harmonic. Mm -hmm. But two quarters is a half. Mm -hmm. So you have the opposition that is not only the second harmonic, but it also falls on the fourth harmonic. Right, that makes sense. And you know, one of the things, of course, that's nice in the way that this gets integrated in the traditional system is that the two easier benefic aspects in the domicile, the traditional rulership scheme, when you draw aspect lines from the Sun in Leo and the Moon in Cancer. The sextile goes to the Venus. Ju Venus and Jupiter. Uh, yeah, and the trine goes yeah, to Jupiter, absolutely. and those are the two positive aspects, and then the square goes to Mars and the opposition to Saturn, absolutely. and those are the two malefics. And 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 that is primarily the reason why I would never drop the zodiac, because it's just too magical mm -hmm. the way it all goes together. Yeah, those yeah. overlapping yeah. Um, different rationales that then help to inform each other about the nature and, and gives you an access point for understanding the deeper meaning of some of those pieces. Yeah. Now, can you go back to the um, Yad, the finger of God? Okay. Um, and the word Yad actually comes from the Hebrew word Yud, which is the 10th letter of the alphabet. And there are 10 fingers on the human hand. Mm. And because when the Jews read the Torah, you weren't allowed to touch the Torah because A, it was sacred, and B, the oil from your fingers would actually degrade the papyrus or sheepskin that the Torah was, the scrolls were written on. Mm. And so they used this device called a yad, which was this silver pointer about the length of one and a half pencils. And at the end of it, there was a little fist with a finger like that, that actually you used to read it. And I think that the concept of a yod 
where you have two planets at the base. Here we have the Sun and Saturn at the base of the Yod, so connected in, in by a sextile. sextile. Go ahead. Okay, yeah. 60 degrees. 60 degrees, which means that if there is a planet at the opposite midpoint, what do I mean by that? There's a If you have the Sun and Saturn 60 degrees apart, there's a point 30 degrees in between them that's halfway between them. Yeah. And if you go to the opposite point, that's where Mars is on this. It's at the opposite midpoint, which turns out to be the quincunx point. So that if you go around the circle, it's five twelfths from Saturn to the Mars. Mm -hmm. It's five twelfths from Mars back to the sun. And it's two twelfths from the sun to Saturn, adding up to 12 twelfths. Mm -hmm. What this means is that the finger of God or the Yod is actually a 12th harmonic configuration because it's based upon the division, even though there's a sextile in it, it's like doing fractions and the lowest common denominator. You, it, It's basically a 12th harmonic pattern. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's like taking a grand trine and putting in a midpoint opposite to it and calling it a kite. Yeah, well, and I think that's one of the reasons why some people like uh, Bill Tierney recommend using tight orbs for it, because when you start dealing with the midpoints, you are talking about um, things that are mathematically close to a very specific point that is the midpoint between two other planets. Maybe, but I think Bill uses tight. Bill he isn't doing astrology these days, but I think Bill is he uses, still around. Like I, yeah, I was thinking yeah. about that recently. He, I, I think Bill uses tight points because he was a tight type of person. <laughs> okay, um, and I don't mean that negatively. Right. I mean that was his personality. Hmm. Um, I, I Freud would say that that perhaps he was. Uh, anal retentive would be the word, and I'm not using this as a diagnosis, Bill, if you're listening. Um, but at the other end of the spectrum, I would probably be, you know, what what Freud would call oral, which is rather loose and sloppy. So what can okay. I say? No judgment here. Yeah. But but the thing is- Just a family show, let's keep it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the thing is, is that is that whenever you have a configuration, you always have to reduce it to, to so, so that a kite- even though there are trines in it, it's actually a, a, and in opposition. There, it's a sixth harmonic aspect configuration because they're sextiles. Here's a kite. Yeah, so you can see that that so there's a grand trine, so we know there are trines in it. Yeah, there's the Jupiter opposite Mars. There's a second harmonic. So in let's it. describe it for people just listening to the audio. So what we have is a grand exact grand trine of three planets that are in 120 degree aspects that forms a big triangle around the chart. Yep. And then there is a fourth planet which is in this instance Mars which is opposite to one of the planets in that grand trine and it's simultaneously sextile to two others. Yep. And so I would my, my students would quickly identify this as a sixth harmonic configuration. Why? Because you take the lowest common denominator. Mm -hmm. The the sextile is 1 sixth. Okay. The trines are two sixths. Um, the opposition is three sixths, and so this is a sixth harmonic configuration. Now, can we go back to, and and my and 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 in using charts and doing analysis for natal charts, when you have configurations, the lower the harmonic configuration, the more powerful it is. Hmm. So that a grand square. Or a T square, which are fourth harmonic chart or fourth harmonic patterns, mm -hmm. are stronger than a finger of God, which is a twelfth harmonic pattern. Okay, here's a T square. 
So there you have a square, a square, and an opposition. Mm-hmm. A square is one quarter, an opposition is two quarters, and all together you go around and you get four quarters. It has to add up to one in order for it to be, you know, a, a true configuration. Okay. So so here's the deal. If we can hang on to that quincunx just for a second. This one? Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. The, the quinc- uh, you, Everyone would call this a yod. I would call this a quincunx yod. Okay. Why? Because I think that this is, I think that this is a shadow of a larger, more significant archetype. Okay. What I mean by that is that if we look at the yod, can we go back to the? Yeah. Hold on. Yep. Go. All right. So, so if we look at the base, and we have the sun sextile Saturn, if we widened that aspect from a sextile of sixty degrees. And we widened it to 72 degrees, that would be a quintile. Okay. That would then narrow the quincunxes up to the apex, which are going up to. Okay. Which which would be going up to Mars. Mm. And so if we widened the Sun Saturn sextile to be a quintile, 72 degrees. Then the Saturn to Mars and the Sun to Mars would be biquintiles. And in fact, you would have three points on a five-pointed star. Okay. That pattern, which I call a golden yod, and has now oddly enough been picked up by other people. I see it in the mountain astrologer being called. I first called it a golden yod about 35 years ago. Mm. And I call it a golden yod because a five-pointed star is how we get to the golden mean. Mm-hmm. And so these that the configuration I'm talking about, which we'll see in a couple of charts in a moment, is basically three points on a five-pointed star. And when I see one of those in a chart, that's way more powerful. It's a it's a fifth harmonic configuration. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, that's more powerful than a kite, which is a sixth harmonic configuration. Certainly more powerful than a finger of God, a traditional quincunx yod, because that's a 12th harmonic configuration. Now, if we hold tight just one second on the same picture, if we take that Sun and Saturn, and instead of widening it to 72 degrees, if we narrow it by 9 degrees to 51 degrees, mm-hmm. that becomes that's close to a septile. Okay. And that would then make the Sun to Mars and the Saturn to Mars triceptiles, or about 154 degrees. Mm. Now we would have three points on a seven-pointed star. And again, when I see that in a chart, man, I know exactly where to go. And I can point this out in a chart of someone who's been an astrologer for 35, 40 years. And when I point that out in their chart, they go, holy crap, this like explain something about me that I never quite could see in my chart and I get it. Mm-hmm. That's that's what happens again and again and again and again to me. So that's so I use the quintiles and septiles because they're the lowest harmonic of these metaphysical, non-Ptolemaic, futuristic quantum aspects that are not minor because they are important. But maybe their minor, like A minor or B minor in a key, is not less important than A major. It's just a different nuance. There's a thought. Yeah. Well, it just it still just makes me think of the last conversation we had in the Uranus episode about how you can have Newtonian physics and that 
operates on the visible world really well and we still do you know like nasa still yeah. launches ships to the moon or other planets based on newtonian physics and, and the, and the math rules works of that. just fine yeah and on this level on this realm but then there are also uh quantum sort of physics and quantum mechanics which goes down into a much smaller realm where things start operating in in a different way that may not be visible to us and may operate by very different rules, yeah. but may still be relevant in some way. Yeah, and of course, as we talked about during that, uh, I believe the same <clears throat> the same strange things that happen at the quantum microscopic level are reproduced as above, so below at the quantum macroscopic level. Mm. That's why I think we get these alterations of space and time and and time being bent out of shape somehow by um, its relationship to the planets or the cosmos. Yeah. Well, and what you we were talking about earlier when you're talking about strings vibrating and harmonics and stuff a while back made me think of uh, like modern string theory. Isn't that part of the basis of modern string theory? The idea that things, or the theory at least, that things boil down at a fundamental level to like strings vibrating in order to create most of the basic. Uh, mechanisms in the universe? From what I know about it, yes. Okay. <clears throat> I would not pass myself off as a string theory expert. All right. So we are back from a break. And before we get into charts, I wanted to, there was, a, a, I put up a post on Twitter that we were going to do this today. Um, it was kind of impromptu. It was funny because we just recorded the forecast last night. And I get done with this very long two or three hour forecast. And that was my last podcast this month. I was looking forward to taking it easy for the rest of October and my birthday's coming up. And then I, I look at my phone and you called and you said, I'll be in Denver tomorrow. And yeah, it was, it was time to record the minor, the, the non-Ptolemaic aspects episode. Um, so there were some questions that came in through Twitter that I wanted to get to for sure. a little bit and just see if there's any interesting ones that are worth discussing before we move into chart work. Yeah. So I was unable to share the screen, so I'll just read them off my phone. Um, um, David on Twitter asks, while Ptolemaic aspects as seeing makes sense for traditional visible planets, perhaps for the invisible planets, minor aspects can tell us more, especially about the slow outers, less likely to reach standard aspects in the modern world. What do you think about that? Maybe. Although if I see a, um, a moon quintile or septile sun, or uh, I mean, it, it can be the most powerful thing in a chart. So I, mm. I, I think that the internal, the faster moving planets, when they make these aspects, they can be just as every bit important, every bit as strong. Okay. Uh, Noel asks or says, why do we need minor aspects when the Ptolemaic aspects already do a great job at delineating the natal chart in full? What imperative information do minor aspects add to delineations? I think we covered some of that today, but the fact of the matter is that uh, <clears throat> Descartes was wrong. No amount of formulas and analytics will describe all the mysteries. Um, one cannot look at a chart and know all the answers to er all the questions in the chart. There's always mystery. And these... Uh, non-Ptolemaic or metaphysical or additional aspects are, you know, it's like having um, a Crayola box, Crayola crayons with eight colors, mm. then to discover there's one with 16 colors, and then to discover there's one with 128 colors. Right. You know, why do you need all those other colors? 
Why do you need additional instruments in an orchestra? It it, it adds richness, mm. adds, adds to the fabric. Subtlety and nuance. Um, is there a difference between Sarah Juliet Fruman asked, how should we interpret them in natal charts versus mundane? So is there any difference between natal interpretation versus mundane? This is a really good question. And I'm going to give a short answer. Um, the short answer is I don't use them much in mundane as the champion mm -hmm. that I am Interesting. of these aspects. Um, Chris, you and I have been having this ongoing discussion about what we should call them. Right. Because I don't like minor because it makes them sound like they're less important. And quite frankly, when you look at a few charts, you realize that they can be the singular most important thing in a chart. They can be major. All right. I'm still, so, I'm still voting for quantum aspects. Quantum aspects that's, that's may, cool. may, may, may work. Um, but, but there is something to their metaphysicalness in as much as, um, I would never use, uh, even when I write my dailies, my daily, my daily column, Planet Pulse, um, I don't lean on these aspects a lot. I can sometimes, but they don't seem to have as much import in the out outside external three-dimensional world as they do in the metaphysical realm. And there was a Define time metaphysical. Are you saying that they primary they don't manifest as much in, in concrete external events? They mainly manifest as as internal or character or psychological events? Yeah, that's partly it. In other words, um, <clears throat> there was a time when we believed that if it wasn't sensible, meaning of the senses, it didn't exist. Mm. There were metaphysical traditions or mystics who knew there were other things, but largely culture said not until the not until Lavoisier discovered oxygen did we have any concrete proof that things existed that we couldn't perceive. Mm. And 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 yet we've moved into a realm with the um, discovery and comfort we now have with the with the non sensible planets, meaning the planets beyond our senses. Mm -hmm. um, Bucky Fuller used to quote used to quip that ninety nine percent of all science is being done in areas of universe that we cannot perceive with our five senses, and so. Um, the reason why I don't use the quintiles and septiles and other um, non-Ptolemaic quantum aspects um, in mundane work is that in mundane work, we're typically looking at events in the outer world. Mm. I would not use a, um, a quintile or septile transiting to point to a physical change of job or move or illness or they're, they're more internal states. But when I bring this into a discussion or in the charts that we'll look at in a few minutes, you'll see how how excitingly important they are that really make a chart into something different than it would be without it. And that's about as much as I can say there. Okay. Um, so that's important or could be important. I mean, you know, Kepler's defense of it with that one letter was more of a mundane event. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so that's tricky. Um, all right, let me check some other ones. Um, oh yeah, the other thing going back, again, talking about shades of crayons and that's the other thing about the quantum things is it also has this idea of quantum things being very small, but 
which is a nice alternative than than saying minor. But when we talk about quantum things, we don't have as much of a stigma of that being somehow lesser. Like quantum can still be important. Uh, yeah, just throw that out there as another. Well, quantum can be important enough that it defines what we. In other words, what's under the ocean defines what the foam is that we see on top. Mm, right, that's a good one. Um, somebody said a bunch of people keep asking about the difference between a quincunx and an inconjunct, and I think we discussed that as a term- we, terminological we did. issue. We did. Um, but do you agree? Um, somebody was asking about that in terms of an aversion, like the way you're describing that as. Would you agree with a more traditional view that it's like a, you know, they would say a lack of an aspect or a lack of a connection between two things? It almost sounded like you might go that direction because you were saying there was like a, um, um, what were you saying? What was the term specific term that you used? Instability. It's almost like a void spot where it wants to jump to somewhere else. Mm, a void spot. I mean, yeah, that yeah. sounds very similar to the. It does, but ever- but I've seen again and again where it actually. Sometimes I think of it as the mosquito that you hear just as you're ready to fall asleep. Mm. You know, and you know what's worse than hearing right. it's hearing it stop. Mm. <laughs> right. You know, I guess you know it's landed on you somewhere. And 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 so what happens is that you kind of do that and you think you've got it and then three minutes later, just as you're dozing, you hear it again, and finally you go, all right. It's either you or me, and you sit up and you turn the lights on and you wait and you say, I'm going to get it. We're not going to both be in this room or in this tent. Mm -hmm. And you wait and 10 minutes goes by, nothing. So you close down shop again and just as you're falling asleep, you hear the mosquito. Mm -hmm. I've seen this be the way that quincunxes work. Another way I'll explain it to a client who has a close, when I say close, I mean a tight orb, 150 degree, give or take a couple degrees. Um, is that there's a place if we take our hand and and we put it like elbow right angle and we wiggle our fingers and we move our hand forward and backward, there is a place where we can tell something's moving, but we can't tell what it is. Mm. And a quincunx is like, imagine that my hand is connected to my ear by a steel bar, which means that when I go to look to see what the hell it is, <laughs> it right. turns with me. You're talking about the the optical blind spot. The optical right almost blind spot. Right. You know, it's right on the edge of perception. And I can't make it go away by looking away because when I do, that spot follows me. Mm-hmm. And so that's it, – it's more than just nothing's there. It's nothing's there and I know it's there and I can't get rid of it and I can't bring it into focus. Okay. Well, that sounds very interesting and reconcilable with that traditional yeah. notion of like aversion or there being uh, a, a blind spot for the planet in some sense. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay. Uh, let's see any other interesting ones before we move on. Um, oh, yeah. The next one actually from Andre asks that minor aspects disregard the optics principles. So, what's the inherent rationale to care about them? And it has to do with divisions of a, of a cycle in harmonics. Well, and that's right. And I, and I think that one of the things that I think is an important differentiation between the tradition of Hellenistic astrology and some more modern looks at how the universe works is that optics is just a narrow slice of the electromagnetic spectrum mm-hmm. that we can't see. Optics implies that there's a visual kind of metaphor, if you will, mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of things humming 
on the electromagnetic spectrum that are infra and um, and ultra uh, below and above the frequencies of what's visually perceivable. Yeah, and and the ancient um, Hellenistic optics thing was was based on and partially incorporated geometry geometry because geometry and optics were integrated in the Greek model or the Greco-Roman model mm -hmm. as visual rays that emanated from the eye and struck objects and that's how you could see certain things but why you can't like see around corners or things like that right right um so this just takes one piece of that which is the geometrical part and integrates it much more deeply but that geometrical part also is used extensively in electromagnetic circuitry what they call uh, integrated circuit analysis where it's mathematical and harmonics but there's a geometry in in how these things are all how circuits are laid out if you will okay all right uh <clears throat> let me see if there's any other good ones um yods i'm glad you brought that up uh, a yod because that was something i think that i did an aspects patterns episodes with carol taylor a year ago but we didn't get to yods mm -hmm. and because we mainly focused on the other aspects that were formed by Ptolemaic aspects, or the patterns formed by Ptolemaic aspects, and the odd is a, is a weird one because it's two in it's two quincunxes mm -hmm. that are sextile another planet. Mm -hmm. um, so Yod, though uh, Yod, sometimes gets very hyped in in modern astrology. I would say sometimes overhyped. It sounds like you're not as pro overhyping Yods as as some might be. Or yes, where are you at I, with Yods? Well, I th I I think they're I think they're important, but I also think that throughout the 20th century, because we had Neptune-Pluto holding an almost consistent sextile mm. for 130 years, that there is an inordinate, um, there's more yods than there have been in centuries before or after, mm. because of every time a planet moves through that opposite point to the sextile, um, to this, to the um neptune pluto sextile there it is right. so it, it's kind of become overplayed but i'll tell you when i see a quintile or septile yod which we'll see in a few minutes i get excited because those seem to be way more profound okay that's a good that's a good answer <clears throat> um and it seems like there's things like that though that sometimes some astrologers either want to say either specialize in or focus on and sometimes that's how something gets overhyped is that it just becomes an important piece in one school and sometimes mm -hmm. one school will tend to overhype it but that happens in a lot of different things. I agree I agree with that. Like the the nodes or Pluto or the lot of fortune or you know I'm trying to think of other things like that where some school emphasizes it so much that it almost becomes a little bit too overhyped for some reason. Yeah. I I would agree with that. Um uh yeah, and 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 in another part of the, I want to, don't want to say taking the the wind out of the the yacht, the sail of the yacht, is I actually think that any isosceles triangle that falls on a harmonic mm -hmm. functions as a yod. Okay. In other words, whether it's a traditional sextile quincunx yod. Or a T-square <laughs> hmm. is an isosceles triangle with a base and an apex. The energy is still the same. It's the opposition that creates the stress or tension that is fed up through the apex. That's the 90-degree points to both. 
Mm. Um, a um, Thor's hammer, where you have a square and a half, a square and a half, and a square. You know, again, not a traditional configuration, but man, you look at these and see these in people's charts, and again and again and again, these other configurations that are based upon symmetrical geometry and harmonics, they just seem to work. Okay. Uh, all right. This might be good uh, for, that might be good for the questions as far as I'm seeing that we haven't covered because we've actually covered so much already. Now, before we jump into charts, though, I just want to mm. say a, a quick thing about because we're going to be now looking at some charts that we're going to look at through our normal filter, mm-hmm. and then we're going to look at them through the quin- quintile, not quincunx, quintile septile uh, filter. And I, I've done a lecture on and off for years called the X-tiles. The truth is out there. <laughs> and That's in, a good title. In, in which um, the X-tiles are the um, quintiles, the septiles, the turnstiles, the kitchen tiles, the infantiles, all the different tiles. Are there any, the the rep, rep, reptiles. <laughs> the reptiles. The reptiles. Uh, Aaron Sullivan, who's in my Septile Hall of Fame. I have a Hall of Fame for each of my minor aspects. Uh, every time I see her, she goes, hey, Rick, how are my reptiles? <laughs> nice. Um, all right. So our first chart. No, wait. But before we get to, before we actually do this first chart. Yeah. The the primary there's a huge difference between quintiles and septiles. All right, quintiles are natural; they occur in nature. It's the fivefold. It's the <clears throat> excuse me. It's the um, the starfish. It's the rose is a quintile. It's a five pointed star spiraling inward. There's a lot of quintile uh, radial geometry in the natural world. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> There's almost no seven seven pointed star natural. Seven is a man-made construct more often than not. There's the seven virtues or there's seven days in the week or seven colors in the rainbow primarily because Isaac Newton was a seven freak because of the prophecies of Daniel. He added indigo to make it seven colors. But there's no natural. Seven, seven is otherworldly. So... The quintile that we talked about earlier, based upon the golden mean, is beautiful. It's it it it's it can be painful because the five pointed star inverted is the symbol of satanic religions. Okay, and so you see strong um, quintile. That's the five pointed star. You see strong quintile configurations in charts like like the Marquis de Sade and Albert Speer and uh, Adolf Hitler, just a few that come to mind. Um, but most quintile charts are natural and beautiful. Now compare that with the septile charts, which are otherworldly. <laughs> they're, they're so complicated that they almost have to squeeze into three dimensions. Um, there's been research done on the preponderance of septiles at UFO sightings and, um, and and people who have reported those kinds of experiences. When I see a chart with strong septile emphasis, I immediately go to the question of, so what's the deal with non-physical um, consciousness? Ghosts, goblins, spirit guides, ancestor guides, aliens, 
things that go bump in the night, um, you know, um, psychic mediums. I've done charts of many professional psychic mediums and the septile aspect overwhelmingly shows up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting is that, that they're both in a way metaphysical, but the quintiles are more natural, more beautiful, and more um, charismatic, whereas the septiles are more brilliant, but they're harder to maintain because it's almost like other dimensions are leaking into this world for a glimpse. And uh, quintile is 72 degrees and septile is 51.4. Right, but just as a, as a matter of, of um, record, when I say quintiles, I mean quintiles and biquintiles. Okay. In natal interpretation, there's nuance difference, but basically it's about quintiles being quintiles and biquintiles. And when I say septiles, I'm referring to septiles, biceptiles, and triceptiles, which are not on that little map. Yeah. But again, if you think of a five-pointed star um, and point one point at any degree of the zodiac, mm -hmm. the other four points fall on the quintile, biquintile points. Okay. And if you think of the seven-pointed star and make the point on whatever the point is you're looking at, the, the, the septiles will be the closest uh, to the before and after, the septiles will be the closest points, the biceptiles will be the next, and the triceptiles will be the ones closest to an opposition. But there is no opposition, like there is no opposition on a grand trine. If you have an odd harmonic, there's no opposition. There's no opposition on a grand trine, on a grand quintile, or on a grand septile. Mm. Okay. So now let's jump into a couple of charts. And can we work these backwards? The first one I'd like to look at is Ram Das. Really quickly, are these glyphs, like Paula used these glyphs, and I hadn't seen some of these. I've seen the Q for like quintile, um, but I hadn't seen some of the other glyphs for some of the other minor aspects. No, are any know. of these standardized? Or not have you seen not that I know of. Okay. So I just wanted to point that out because I don't want to like accidentally like popularize some glyphs that I, I don't even use necessarily or, or but... Um, are there any? I think the the inconjunct or the the quincunx that and the semisextile glyph is pretty standard. That is, and that's basically the straight line with the triangle below or above it pointing toward the straight line. Yeah, because um, it's just like half a sextile, basically. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, yeah. So that's pretty straightforward. The semi-square and the sesquisquare are also both very common. The, okay. This, this, the the semi-square looks like 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 a um, like a V on its side down by Leo. If you go to the bottom right right here, if you put your pointer, yeah, that, that's the semi-square, and then this is the, the and that's the sesquisquare. Got it. Okay. Um, and then I'm like astro.com. I know I've seen. I think the quintile and the biquintile is like a Q. I use a Q and a little two by the Q. Okay. And a two. And a septile. I in in my work I use the septile um an S one, S two, S three for a septile, biceptile, triceptile. Got it. Okay. You'll see them on the aspect grid when we look at them in just a few minutes. All right. So what chart did you want to start with? Uh Ramdas one. Um I don't have the numbers oh, in you here, but I can can we pull it? Oh visual, wait a minute. No, you have you, you wait, you have There's Ramdas. Okay, that one will do. That's 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 it. Okay. So here's a chart of someone who's a spiritual guru, a psychologist, someone who's, you know, you look at this chart. Who is he or what's the context just for anyone that's like 
10 years old and listening. <laughs> <laughs> Ramdas was one of the three Harvard psychologists who was experimenting with psychedelics. And uh, uh, he and Tim Leary and Ralph Metzger got kicked out of uh, Fired. And uh, Tim Leary kind of went off on his own and kind of touted LSD. Ramdas went to India, found a guru, and became kind of like a spiritual leader teacher. He wrote the book "Be Here Now," and he and the, whenever anyone says "Be Here Now," when they whether they know it or not, they're actually referring to Ramdas's work. Okay, um, so he became like a spiritual guru, a spiritual guru, and an amazing storyteller. And he's all over the internet. And if you just want to kind of be, you know, rocked into rocked into some place of comfort with the universe, Ramdas is a good person to do that with. And we already talked about how I stumbled across this chart at one point. I was surprised at like how amazingly dignified his chart is from a traditional astrological standpoint, where he has almost every planet either in one of its major dignities of domicile exaltation or mutual reception by domicile. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty interesting. Pretty interesting. He also has a very close sun um, Uranus conjunction. And in the spirit of full astrological disclosure, um, I should say that I was born on April 6th, but I was a bit younger. A lot of the of same younger. year? No, not of the same year. Okay, sorry. Yeah, he was born in 1931. He passed away a couple years ago. Right. Um, but, he w but he did have um, a sun Uranus conjunction, and he certainly was... Um, an out of the box, eclectic, unusual person. Mm -hmm. um, the um, Neptune, the uh, Mercury Neptune trine certainly worked for him. He could tell stories, and you think he was singing songs. I mean, he just had this 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 voice that just was was entrancing. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the Moon in Sagittarius that was um, trine. Um, the Uranus Sun conjunction. Um, you know, he when he lectured, he sometimes would say, "You know, you guys have all come here to see me talk, but I'm just in my living room, and you've all stopped by." <laughs> you know, there was that that moon kind of always being at home while he was on his adventure. What um time are you using for him? You have uh, Virgo rising. Uh, yes. Okay. For some reason, I had. Uh, in my files, a different time with like cancer rising. Yeah, I actually, there's, um, yeah. Well, for what we're doing here, it doesn't matter. Right, because we're not really focused on the houses. Uh, uh, we're not focused on the houses, and it'll turn out that what we're really focused on is if we could shift gears, and then uh, there should be a Ramdas too that maybe will follow this, hopefully. Is that it? Oh, um, hold on. Nope, that's David Bowie. Yeah, here. Uh, don't, you don't have the file names listed anywhere? Um, I had it up just a second ago there. Uh, yeah, okay. So here what we're showing is I've taken out all the regular aspects. Mm -hmm. And what we have is the mustard-colored lines, the yellowish lines, are the quintiles and biquintiles. It's very visually appealing, the pink and the mustard. And the pink... <laughs> <laughs> and the pink is the uh, the septiles, the otherworldly septiles. Okay. And so um, there, and, and I've put aspect grids on these because with these aspects, you can't just look at the degree numbers, so they're not as obvious how close they are. 
And I'm also using a feature here in SolarFire that as the orb approaches zero, the line gets very thick. Mm. So here we can see, for example, that the Jupiter septile, um, the Jupiter septile to um, Neptune is zero degrees, two minutes of orb. Okay. So that line is very thick. And that's a very strong septile, but they're outer planets. But these, this is part of the, you know, his connection to other times, other places, that whole, you know, that, that septile connection with, with the other worlds. Mm. But he has two slightly off-centered um, quintile patterns that I think are hugely significant. And one is what I would call a golden yod or a quintile yod. I referenced this earlier, and that is that the um, um, Mercury um, is. Let me just get this right. Yeah, um, Mercury is quintile to Jupiter. Now I'm using five degree orbs here on the quintiles, mm. which people who say, "Oh yeah, I use quintiles; they're minor aspects." I use two degree orbs. You'll never find the magic of them if you narrow your orbs that much. You have to open them up and treat them as if they were really going to be important. Okay. Um, but here, the the Mercury um, to the Moon and the Moon back to Pluto into Jupiter, you can kind of see that this creates three points on a five-pointed star. Then we have the Venus to the Mars, that Venus-Mars is less than one degree of orb, um, and it then reflects up to the Chiron, and certainly um, his role as mentor, teacher, um, healer was certainly significant. Um, we're not going to delve really deeply on these. I'm just trying to point out how symmetrical geometry in these other aspects can add nuance and a chart that if you looked at Ram Dass's chart without looking at this, nothing strikes you as extraordinary. Okay, so there's a, um, there is a fair amount of dignity. I mean, that could, on some level, it's a clue of extraordinary. But here, because we have these, these um, uh, quintile symmetrical patterns, it takes it to another level. Okay, so in terms of practical terms, because um, I like to think of myself sometimes as an anthropologist of astrologers, in practical terms, so you have two different charts here for a presentation. In your order of like looking at a chart or sitting down with a client, will you look at first the Ptolemaic aspects and then you'll do a second chart with the uh, quantum aspects? Or it, it, it varies. I okay. actually have one aspect set that has them all. And I've trained myself to work with them, Has although the whole, that, both of yeah, them. Okay. Uh, although that can be overwhelming for some people. Mm. I do like to, when I, even when I'm teaching, I like to run two different versions of the same chart. Not even though I would look at the Ptolemaic um, version first. It's not because it's more important. It's because it's a starting point. Okay, and then I'm switching the power on the microscope. Right, And when you switch, I, all the examples that I've taken today are ones that have strong <laughs> patterns in the, in the quintile and septile realm. Hmm. However, if you just took 10 charts at random, half of them or more would almost have nothing. I mean, just like some charts have no sextiles. Mm -hmm. um, some charts have no squares. You know, um, I mean, and so we're looking at ones that have strong 
um, uh, preponderance or showing of, of, of those aspects. Okay, so there are some charts that are going to have more uh, minor aspects, and there's some that are going to have less. Uh, do you restrict it in terms of points? Which points are you drawing your, your minor aspects to versus are you using like ascendant midheaven, descendant IC? Are you Sometimes using- I do. It, it, okay. it varies just like it varies when I'm looking at my regular. <laughs> I, sometimes I just have so much noise that I'll, um, I won't draw in the aspects. I'm not drawing them in here to the ascendant midheaven. However, I'll note it when I see it. So you've been doing it so long that you can actually visually notice uh, when one of those aspects shows up at this point? Normally, if I'm doing research or working with accurate times, I will calculate in um, the midheaven and an ascendant. Um, I'm showing them here at the bottom of the chart. I just don't have the lines drawn in. So for example, we can see, um, if I can make this a little bit bigger on my screen, um, we can see that Saturn is um, by quintile the midheaven, um, you know, one degree orb. Okay, so, so in the aspectarian in the bottom line, they're left. showing. Yeah, got it. And um, was you've done horoscopes and like daily and monthly and weekly forecasts for for years? And that was something I just realized is if you're not using those for mundane. If you say you're not using it for mundane, you probably didn't integrate them into that work, right? I did occasion. I do okay. occasionally. Okay. If there's a day when when there's a um, um, a Venus Jupiter septile and a um, Sun um, something else biceptile, and the Moon is making septile biceptile triceptiles to all those points, I'll know that there's something weird okay. <laughs> about that day. I won't. I won't analyze the individual aspects by themselves mm-hmm. because the quantum astrologer in me wants to put this together into a hum rather than isolating out the particulates. Mm. Um, wasn't the harmonic convergence in like 1987 based partially on some minor aspect patterns or something like that? Not that I know of. No. Okay. <laughs> it was something weird way back then, kind of like the 2012-ish thing, but the 80s version of that. Um, yeah, is- not th- not that I, as far as I know, there was nothing astrological. Although obviously, when a lot of people get together and think the same thing, if it's a cool thing, that's a cool thing, you mm-hmm. know. But I no, I I know nothing about any astrology connection to either the harmonic convergence or to. Uh, December twenty first, twenty twelve. Yeah, I mean, it seems like sometimes people come up with stuff for non astrological reasons, and then later attempt like shoehorn an astrological reason yeah. onto it. Yeah. Uh, when did you? I meant to ask. When did you start using these aspects? How long? Like, was nineteen seventy one? So was that from the beginning or yeah. from yeah. day one? And, okay. and, I, and I told, I, I started to tell you this story when we were before we were on Mike, mm-hmm. and that is one of the first books that came to me as a. Uh, um, a senior in college, psychology major, um, thinking that I was going to be a Jungian analyst and go to the Jungian Institute. Mm. Um, uh, one of the first astrology books that came across my desk, uh, well, actually two of them, one of them was Dane Rudyard's Astrology of Personality, mm-hmm. and the other one was a book called um, um, The Human... Uh, uh, now, I, d- I just looked at this before, The, the Humanistic... 
um, yeah. guide the handbook to, for humanistic astrology. Right. And that was by a man named Michael Meyer, who's never been a part of the astrology community that I know of, but is still kicking around and his website's amazing. He does really good work. Mm-hmm. And he was a student of Dane Rudyard. And in the forward of his book, he says that uh, these my teachings are based upon the teachings of Dane Rudyard. Okay. And in it, he uses... Um, Quintiles, septiles, noviles, squares, sextiles, conjunctions, as if they were all aspects. And so from the very beginning, I just, they were part of how I thought. Did Rudyard? I can't. Yes. I oh, yeah. Did. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He got that directly from Rudyard. Mm. And, uh, and, and interestingly enough, if I could s- simplify Rudyard's take on, on quintiles and septiles, um, it's interesting because Rudyard said that quintiles were about talent. And he said that septiles were about fate. Th- those, those were his bottom lines for each of those aspects. Mm-hmm. Well, the quintiles may have talent connected to it, but you see someone like, um, uh, like Rachmaninoff playing a concerto and you see with what ease and grace and how talented he is, mm-hmm. and yet you don't see the years of, of, of bleeding fingertips from practicing 20 hours a day. Right. Quintiles aren't just about talent. They are about the manifestation of things that were not physical into the physical realm that are inherently in the beauty um, polarity, because it can be beauty or it can be horrific. Hmm. Um, But but often people who seem to be talented have strong quintiles. We'll see a few of those in just a moment. Now with septiles, he said that was about fate. But you see, Jung very clearly pointed out that fate was about the unaspected parts of our subconscious. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that if we integrate things, then we co-create our future. But if they're not integrated, then shit seems to happen to us all the time. Mm-hmm. And quinti- I'm sorry, septiles are very complicated. And so, therefore, you look at a chart, for example, of the bombing of the World Trade Tower. It's one of the most heavily septiled charts. Now, I know I just said I didn't use septiles in mundane. You're talking about the first time? I'm talking about the first. No, I'm talking about the September 11th. Okay. The the 9, 10 a.m. or whatever the time was, that first hit. Hmm. of um, of the Twin Towers from the airplane. Okay. Um, that timed chart had more septiles in it than any chart I've ever seen. Hmm. And, and fate, something comes crashing through from some... It's like people on another dimension are playing a game of chess, and then all of a sudden something here happens, and boom, it's checkmate. But the game has been way more complicated than what we get to see. And so there's always this connection with with things coming crashing through. And and I don't argue with with Rudyard's fate, but that's the symptom, that's not the cause. Okay. We'll see more of those in just a minute. All right. Okay, which so chart? Ram Dass? Yeah, wait. we're good with Ram Dass. Da- okay. Let's do David Bowie because okay. that's such a clear one. Sure. So so David Bowie um just looking at his regular old ordinary chart. And again, 
Who is this for the 10-year-olds in the audience? Oh, my God. David Bowie was uh, a rock and roller um, who kind of broke through the gender um, gender issue um, with uh, Iggy um, Stardust with Man... Uh, he, um, um, this is Earth to Major Tom. What's that song? Spaceman. Um, he... Um, he was a rocker who reinvented himself in different personalities that were alien, that were literally spacemen, mm. um, and um, and also very heavy, heavy um, costume and definitely bisexual or at least um, e- extra sexual. Is that a word? Um, there was a an energy of him that was not contained by the normal sexual modes, and he was one of the first people in popular consciousness um, who really busted through that very, very strongly. Okay. And we have a 9 a.m. chart for him, right? We have a 9 a.m. chart for him. Okay, cool. And we have a um, a Mars conjunct Sun in Capricorn. Yeah. And Mercury in Capricorn. An Aquarius rising. An Aquarius rising. Licensed to be weird. You, you cast these um, in whole sign, but what do you normally use? I normally use Coke. Okay. Um, and, and I use it for just as stupid a reason as anyone uses whatever house sign they use. It's like orbs, you know, if <laughs> none of them work. I mean, or they all have, you know, an area, but um, I, I, my, the reason I use Coke houses is it's the most modern. It's the most recent. <laughs> yeah. Is okay. it the only 20th century? You know, it was a, it, it was a add on correction, I guess is what you might want to say. To Placidus by a German mathematician named Walter Koch. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He actually did a, if I'm rem- remembering correctly, he did a really good book on house division with another astrologer that I've discovered in the past year in German. That's actually really good. Uh, yeah, yeah. A- anyhow, um, but I I use that arbitrarily, but I also use whole signs. I mean, I go back and forth. Obviously, when I'm writing and researching, I you know I probably spend more time in whole sign houses, um, and even Aries rising whole sign because when I do lunations and stuff like that, I don't run them for a place on the planet because mm. people watching the video can be anywhere on the planet, you right. know. Yeah, and so I find that rather bothersome that someone would run a chart from a particular place for those types of mundane events. But that's just me, regardless. Can you give me some historical, or or the kids in the audience, some historical context about the rediscovery of whole sign houses and how that just didn't exist until like the 90s in the community? Like it just wasn't a concept, right? No, like, it was no, no. But but the, but people did use equal houses, right? And and equal houses was a concept where you know whatever your ascendant was, mm-hmm. thirteen degrees of Aquarius, then thirteen degrees of each sign was the cusp all the way around, so the houses were equal, right. which put the midheaven, you know, you know, either in the ninth or the tenth, could be even in the eleventh, but. Um, but no one used whole sign houses. Yeah, it just didn't exist as a it concept. Did not exist as a concept, and it's something that I think really came in in the early '90s with you know with Arhat and Project Hindsight is my assumption. Right. Yeah. Basically, it's just that's got to be one of the most major transformations of a really important basic concept that suddenly like didn't exist, and then suddenly is reintroduced, and and a lot of people suddenly adopt it. In a while, and and I think that I think that the, that a lot of people have adopted it as both good and bad. Mm. Um, and I, I mean, I, the thing is that whole sign houses to me 
acknowledges that you can't compress the complexity of three dimensions onto a flat piece of paper without getting distortion. Mm. Especially when you're north or south of the equator and you're mapping the, um, you know, the celestial equator or the ecliptic, actually, um, and you're going to get distortion. Something's got to give. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember the first time I taught in Oslo and my first client had the uh, ascendant conjunct the midheaven. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, not, that high not, north. Not yeah. likely here, but it just so. So the whole, I'm I'm always amused by astrologers who use intermediate house cusps, quadrant based intermediate house cusps, second, third, fourth, fifth, eighth, ninth, eleventh, twelfth, mm-hmm. um, intermediate house cusps by um, by by progression or by transit as a timing mechanism, as if it only works when you use porphyry or placidus, or it only works when you use regimontanus, or it only works when you use marinus. Something to me is inherently wrong about that because all these systems wouldn't exist if any of them actually was universally the right one. Yeah, well, I mean, I did an episode with Luis Ribeiro a few months ago where we talked about the historical reasons for the introduction of some of the systems, and some of them were introduced based purely on historical reasons of of the author trying to reconstruct what they thought Ptolemy did and introducing right. a, a interpretation of a of a text of like a passage that introduced a new technical system, and but but may have been like an interpretation or may or may not have been an accurate representation of what that author. Said so. Some of them were not originally introduced for technical reasons or or due to empirical reasons. Right, but, just- but people. But there are people who now follow that school of thought who mm. use them as if they were the only way to get to the technique that they're getting to, right. because the technique comes from the astrologer who invented or or introduced that technique. Yeah, and well, that's the problem in my mind. And that there's actually an issue with that that came up on Twitter yesterday when somebody asked. Um, do you use different house systems for different branches of astrology? And the reason they're asking that, I think, is because they've started studying horary. And there is some um, there's a, there's some traditional astrologers they'll start learning natal astrology and they'll learn whole sign at this point because there's so many Hellenistic practitioners yeah. Yeah. like like Demetra or Ben Dykes or myself or Austin or Kelly or whoever that teach natal astrology. In a whole sign context, and so mm-hmm. some students will learn that first. But then, when they want to learn other branches like horary, most of the horary specialists at this point follow the William Lilly school. So they use Regiomontanus right. just because they're imitating William Lilly. Yep. Yep. And so students will then sometimes learn horary in a Regiomontanus context. And then there's this belief that you can you're supposed to use Regiomontanus for horary, but you use whole sign for natal. So it's setting up this weird. Division, but it's only happened in the past ten years, and it's only like an accident of just what some of the different schools now are promoting, rather than there being a good conceptual reason to use yeah. one system for one branch and another system for a different branch. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ag- agreed. So I've run these in whole sign just because I know that's what a lot of your folks are intru- or you know are used to looking at, and mm-hmm. it doesn't impact the patterns that I'm talking about here, anyhow. Okay. So looking at David Bowie's chart, you know, I mean, the thing that stands out would be a Venus conjunct the midheaven, Mm -hmm. um, the Sun-Mars conjunction, Mars exalted, 
um, you know, uh, conjunct the sun in um, Capricorn, and that powerhouse in the um, seventh house of the Saturn Pluto, um, Saturn contained by the Pluto moon. Okay. Uranus, relatively, or not relatively, but unaspected. So Uranus is at 18 Gemini? Yeah. Okay. Now, if we change to the um, Bowie 1, I've added here the quincunxes and the semi-squares. The semi-squares are in orange. The quincunxes are in green. Mm. Now, all of a sudden, Uranus is in the equation, but Uranus isn't necessarily a happy camper. Those those semi-squares are really loud um, the, um, the, 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 let's see, what is it? It's, um, Uranus to Saturn is three, uh, the U- Uranus to the moon is zero degrees, nine minutes. That is like a powerhouse of the odd part, part of him not fitting in to the, you know, to the showman part. It's like, it's a creative conflict, mm-hmm. but it but it's hard to work with, and it certainly was difficult for him as he kept reinventing himself and coming out with different identities um, through the, geez, I guess probably the late 70s and 80s. I might be off here a bit. And then we, we look at the, um, the, the sun. Um, um, it's, it's not the sun. It's um, m- m- Mercury. Let's see, just see what's here. To Venus, uh, yeah, the Venus, Venus to Mars, the Venus to Mars being a half square, also uh, less than a half a degree of orb, and we can see now that we couldn't see earlier the conflict, the you know the um, the the creative tension that this guy has to work off, mm. um, and and of course here if you're using Chiron, the fact that Chiron is so closely square Saturn. You know, we know there are issues and we know that, you know, that a lot of this stuff may originate in earlier um, either, you know, hurtful situations or pain or whatever. But there's also that whole teaching aspect um, and that the moon is trying Venus. The moon is trying Venus in the midheaven. But, you know, that this is, as, as a chart by itself makes sense. But when we look at the next chart, which shows... Uh, mostly the septiles. That's what we're concerned with here. It's all of a sudden we get transformed into another place. Mm-hmm. And the strongest patterns, um, well, the closest septile is actually um, the Neptune to Venus, which is five minutes of orb. And again, the fantasy that this guy promoted, as and the Venus is conjunct as midheaven, so it's not just Neptune, Septile, Venus. It's Neptune, Septile, Venus on the midheaven. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this guy basically created this whole illusion of something that people just never imagined. It was new. It was different. It was otherworldly. And it was more complicated than just, a, you know, a guy with orange hair and lipstick, lipstick and makeup. Mm-hmm. It was complicated. He was an alien. And then we look at the relationship between the planets in Leo and the planets in Capricorn, and they are intensely triceptiled so that they don't show up as a normal aspect, um, I mean, as a, as a uh, traditional aspect, 
but we get the Mercury to the Moon is four minutes of arc from being exactly three sevenths of a circle. Mm. The um, that's the 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 Moon to Mercury, and as we work our way around, the Sun to Pluto is less than a quarter of a degree. It's thirteen minutes of arc. When we go to the um, and there's a third one in there that's really close. Oh, the um, Mars to the Pluto, um, that's 18 minutes. So that's just a little bit over a quarter of a degree. But all of a sudden, we see this entirely different configuration. And even though the aspects get wider as we go out to that Uranus, um, I think here I'm working with a three-degree orb, um, Uranus is... Um, under three degrees triceptile to Uranus. Um, it is um, triceptile to Mars by two and a half degrees. And it is to Jupiter, um, um, it is uh, one degree, 20 minutes. Um, and so all of a sudden Uranus fits in, but it fits in in this complicated otherworldly alien. I mean, you, David Bowie was an alien. <laughs> uh, and anyone who knows his work and is familiar with him, there was nothing ever quite like him. He was from another planet. Mm. As was Michael Jackson. Now, we're not going to get into the specific... By the way, Michael Jackson has a um, has dirty data. There are two. There right. are two yeah. uh, two birth times for him. At least. Uh, but there are two that are that are noted to be correct. <laughs> okay. All right. And they're, and they're about eight hours apart. Okay. Um, uh, one is someone who got it allegedly from his birth certificate, and another is a family member who says they were there. So, I mean, there may be others. The point is that- There's one that's like a Vedic astrologer that says he gave him a reading once or something as well, I think. I don't know that. Okay. Um, but- I don't want to spend a lot of time this nor with this, nor do I want to get into um, the the Michael Jackson uh, craziness. Sure. I all I want to do is point out that when you look at his chart just through the normal filter, what time are we using here? Uh, I'm using the 7:33 p.m. Okay. Um, not because I think it's right; it was just one of the two choices. Okay. Um, but I, I'm not considering any aspects to the moon. Um, and it's likely the moon was in Pisces no matter what time of day he was born. Okay. So the aspects would still be in effect for most of the planets? Exactly. Got it. I mean, there, there, there's still going to be a Venus-Uranus conjunction, you know, four-degree orb. Right. Um, there's, um, and there's, you know, but the thing is, is that when you look at this chart, nothing strikes you as, oh my God, this is crazy extraordinary. And whether you were a fan of his or not, he was crazy extraordinary. Mm. And when you look at his chart through the septile, you come up with, and just leave the moon out of the equation, you come up with a chart that has four points on a seven-pointed star that are relatively tight aspects. This one? Uh, yes. So, so we have Saturn, septile, Jupiter less than one degree of orb, Saturn um, to Mars, that's a triceptile, that's about a degree and a half. We have Saturn to the sun, 
That's seven minutes of orb. So we basically have, uh, and then, and then we have the Neptune Jupiter, but the, um, Jupiter down to the Mars. That's just two degrees of orb and the Jupiter to the sun, which is less than one degree of orb. We basically have between Mars, the Pluto sun, the Jupiter, Jupiter Neptune actually, and the Saturn, regardless of what time of day we're using, we have four planets on a seven pointed star. And this is so strong that the damn guy lived in Neverland. Mm. I mean, again, there was something about Michael Jackson that was not, it was too complicated to have fit into this plane, to, into this reality. There's something about him that, that just exudes this septillion energy of being alienated or being an alien, being other than human, being something, something different. So again, just reemphasizing that idea of otherworldly energy. Yes. Okay. All right. Let's take a look at. Uh, let's take a quick look at Emily Dickinson. Um, I think she's next here in line. Anyhow, um, Emily Dickinson was a nineteenth-century um, poet. Um, lived in um, Boston area, um, central Massachusetts, actually, and her claim to fame was that she wrote poems about every corner of the world and poems about travels and and her poems were all very weird and and she never left home mm. i mean she virtually never went outside i'm exaggerating just a little bit but she was a spinster she was a self-contained person and she was isolated. She was isolated. Sounds nice. <laughs> Sounds like my kind of my kind of woman. Well, Saturn, Saturn rising, uh, or actually Saturn in in the first house conjunct the North Node. Um, but again, when you look at the chart, you know you can see her interest in writing about things far away. You know the Sun, Mercury, and Venus in Sagittarius, um, not aspected to anything. Um, you can see the imagination, the Jupiter-Neptune um, conjunction, certainly, which is, you know, a, an aspect of unbridled imagination uh, can be. This is a time, good time chart. This is a good time chart. Okay, that's really funny that she has um, the ruler of the ascendant in the fourth house, for just from your description. Right. I, I mean, literally, someone who I, someone said that she was never more than three miles from where she was born. Okay. Um, that's brilliant. Yeah. But again, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on any of these charts, but looking at the septile version of this chart, um, I mean, there is, a, there is a strong creative quintile. And in my experience, one of the strongest quintiles that really seems to manifest um, is, the, um, is, is the Saturn-Mars. In her case, it's, I think it's not just Saturn-Mars, I think it's Saturn-Pluto, and that Pluto-Mars, I mean, is so deep, so intense, and yet somehow this is now tied to her creativity. I mean, she was, she's one of America's great poetesses. Mm -hmm. But now we look at the, uh, at the septiles, and all of a sudden, we see, again, this otherworldliness, this stuff coming through. Um, you know, the, um, the, the moon, um, triceptile to Pluto, and this is a timed birth. The moon triceptile to Pluto is zero degrees, zero, zero minutes. 
So it's exact. It's exact. I mean, it's exactly exact. Exact, exact. <laughs> and um, and also the Uranus septile to Venus is, I think, what's that, four minutes of orb. I mean, all these septiles are close, but her chart just resounds. And, and, I, and I love the symmetry in this because it's asymmetrical symmetry. What do I mean by that? There's one triangle that is the moon, the sun, and the um, Mars-Pluto. And that's a septile, biceptile, triceptile. And then we have another pattern that is the Venus-Uranus septile, the Uranus-Saturn triceptile, and then the biceptile from Uranus back around to the Sun-Mercury. And so there's a common point on these two um, on these two uh, septile triangles. And interestingly enough, the far off points are connected by this biquintile. It's, it, it's, it's a magical configuration. And it's not surprising that someone who might seem like they have a normal, boring, ho-hum chart in life turns out to be one of the most extraordinary poets with such a rich inner life that, it's a, that she's a widely studied poet. And again, in all of these, I'm just trying to show how we can look at a chart. Let's take a look at the next chart of Bob Dylan, um, a chart that many people have seen and many people know. Um, And um, I was just up in Bob Dylan territory um, last just just a couple days ago up in Minneapolis. Um, <clears throat> where he tried to go to college before he drifted off to New York City as a young teenager. Anyhow, Dylan's chart, um, you know, also, if you look at the regular chart, you know, you can see the basic stuff there. Um, you know, that Taurus stellium um, with um, the moon Saturn so close and the moon Saturn, Uranus, uh, Jupiter, all in the sixth house, man, he was a workaholic. You know, he was on the never-ending tour. And yes, for those people who don't know who Bob Dylan is, <laughs> figure it out. No, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, you know, is the only poet rock and roller ever to win a Nobel Prize for literature. We actually didn't explain who Michael Jackson was either, and that's going <laughs> to confound some some listeners. Uh, well, Michael yeah. Jackson was also a pop uh, a pop singer who gained fame as a child, part of a... Um, a, a um, family group, the Jackson Five, um, and his sister Janet Jackson is still a bit of a uh, of, of a star. And um, Michael died several years ago, maybe about a decade or so ago. My timing might be off here. Um, that was an overdose of a heart medicine from his doctor. Yeah, and so. Michael Jackson um, kind of took pop music. I think he, for a while he was the largest selling um, pop star or pop musician in history. Yeah, like Thriller was the video, uh, one of his breakthrough videos. Mm-hmm. You were going to say something. Just the level of fame that Michael Jackson had in the 1980s is hard to comprehend relative to today yeah. just yeah, yeah just stratospheric anyway i didn't mean to interrupt no that's ago. fine and whatever level of fame and fortune michael jackson had it was nothing compared to bob dylan only because dylan has been on the music scene for i think 55 years now maybe 60 years mm-hmm. and he's still producing he's on what they call the never-ending road tour um i mean he performs like like just crazy amounts 
And I think Bob Dylan of modern um, songwriters, I think, is the most often covered even more than the Beatles. Mm. Um, I mean, with people who have written um, songs, uh, the Birds became famous for for their uh, on their first album for songs like "Hey Mr. Tambourine Man," play you know play a song for me, and "Chimes of Freedom" and the time these times uh, times they are changing, <clears throat> um, times they are changing and blowing in the wind. And Bob Dylan was the original quote unquote protest songwriter. He was with um, a Freedom Rider. He actually performed at the Martin Luther um, King. I have a dream rally in Washington, D.C. Hmm. Bob Dylan, young, scraggly-looking white boy, um, performed a song that he wrote about the death of one of the black um, freedom workers, uh, Medgar Evers. Um, and um, he was just, he was an icon, and he was a musician's musician, but really a lyricist. Hmm. And And he's been steadily producing since... 1962 or 63 is that 40 50 years 60 years okay 50 years 60 years 60 so, years he's 80 ish yeah so he's got that tight taurus stellium and late taurus of saturn uranus yeah or sorry jupiter uranus saturn and the moon and then a smaller stellium of planets in gemini with sun venus and mercury all in gemini and he has this like minor grand trine or whatever you want to call it um, that is Chiron to Neptune to the Taurus stuff, um, and uh, a Sagittarius rising, and you know Dylan really was, uh, and and the Mars and Pisces, Mars and Pisces square, all that stuff, mm. and 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 Dylan really was the person who brought rock and roll into a new level. By uh, there was a whole folk revival tradition um, at that time. And he was like the the darling um, of the folk world, and then he went electric, and it was huge. He was booed off stages for over a year because people were angry at him for for bailing on this whole tradition and becoming a rock and roller. Hmm. Um, and uh, anyhow, be that as it may, um, Dylan, when you look at his chart with the septiles and quintiles. Um, again, you see in his chart two very clean patterns that integrate some of the stuff that in his other chart was not integrated. So first of all, the Mars in Pisces, which was only by square, now becomes one point on a five-pointed star. I don't call this a golden yacht. I call it a golden triangle, but it's still, it's it's an isosceles triangle. And now we have um, basically, at the point of that, um, we have Saturn Moon, which is really what sits at the point. And that Saturn to Pluto is a quarter of a degree orb. Um, and the um, and the Saturn, um, let's see, the Saturn up to where is uh, the Saturn to Mars is a two degree orb. So when we go around here, we go the Saturn Moon, Chiron, Pluto, and Mars. And that's three points on a five-pointed star. And again, it points to the apex of this configuration is still in the sixth house. I mean, it's about his his unrelenting Torian showing up for work and doing things that were real. Hmm. And then he has the otherworldly aspect, the Venus 
to the Neptune um, tied to uh, Pluto. Uh, the Neptune-Pluto for most of us is, is sextile. For Dylan, it's one degree off of being septile. Um, and the Pluto to Venus um, is um, less than one degree. And um, and the Neptune to Venus, no, the Pluto to Venus is two degrees, and the Neptune to Venus is less than one degree. But again, we see here a mix of the person who has the charisma and the creativity and the person who's otherworldly. I'll give you a quick example of how otherworldly he, he is, was when he first became uh, famous, he would do two or three press conferences a day when he had new albums coming out. He would get asked the same questions at each press conference and answer them totally differently with non how do I say it? When two things are with with with, exclu- with answers that couldn't have been right for both of them. Mm-hmm. In one, he would say, "Oh, I came to New York after hitchhiking from New Mexico." In another one, he would say say something totally different. And no, I've never been in New Mexico. But he was just he had this ability to to charm with riddle, because there was this whole thing of. Uh, again, he was an alien. He was otherworldly. It was something about him, but he had that quintile pattern that that was creative. Okay, <laughs> it's really tied in with, yeah. It was like Uranus conjunct Jupiter, the ruler of the ascendant, and that's I guess the focal point more or less of that pattern that you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. One of them at least. All right. What's next? Um, Marilyn Monroe. There we go. All right, Marilyn Monroe. This is a time chart. What do you think? Um, yeah, I've used her chart as an example before. She has really interesting. Leo rising with the ruler of the ascendant is the sun in Gemini conjunct Mercury in the eleventh house, which looks really good. Um, and that has a nice whole sign trine from Jupiter in Aquarius in the seventh house. But um, there's some problems with that Mars conjunct Uranus combination in late Pisces in the eighth house that's overcoming through a superior sign based square the Sun and Mercury, the ruler of the ascendant, which is a little tricky. Uh huh. Um, she also has a very tight Saturn uh, Neptune square yes, with she does. Saturn at 21 Scorpio in the fourth whole sign house and Neptune at 22 Leo in the first house. So, where's the charisma? Leo rising, I get that. Even the Neptune in, you know, Neptune coming up over the ascendant or coming to the ascendant, mm-hmm. um, you know, opposite the moon. Uh, so when we look at her chart through the filter of the quintiles, you see something I think is really extraordinary. And um, although the subtiles here are supportive, I almost wish they weren't in this particular picture because. It looks like she has these two interlacing triangles that look like a diamond. Hmm. <laughs> you know, this is, you know, a diamond is a girl's best friend. Um, and, and what the quintiles do is they, they, they drop Saturn out of the picture, which actually that Saturn, it turns out, is part of a midpoint series where if you take the moon and Neptune, and you take the Venus and Mercury, and at each of these points that there's an axis here that you can see almost if you go right down the middle, that comes up with Saturn as the dividing point. But the interesting thing is that these quintile patterns pretty much involve every other planet in her chart. Mm. And quintiles are charisma. Okay. They're 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 beauty. 
they're magical. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden that Gemini, Mercury, Sun, forget the squares, you know, forget the problems of which obviously, you know, that Saturn uh, square um, Neptune, she had a ton of problems. But, um, you know, when you look at this, you just see the glitter of that, of of those, of that diamond is how I see it. Mm. I, I think that this is like a, a beautiful chart just because it shows the energetics and these quintiles are close. The, you know, the Neptune is one quarter of a degree to the sun and the Uranus is one quarter of a degree to the sun. So you have Neptune on one side and Uranus on the other, and they're really tight, you know, and then you have the Venus in, in, in the middle that's a uh, quintile one way to the moon, that's two degrees orb, and it's quintile the other way to Pluto, and that's two degrees orb. I mean, this whole thing is just, it's a, it's a study in the aesthetics of beauty. Mm. Nice. Mozart. Mozart, let me see. So this is also a data. There's the time for him, although it's an eight o'clock, you know, it's considered to be a data. Is the ascendant, where is the ascendant? Oh, you know what? This is one that came up in that whole sign fortune. I don't know what that means. So I would not pay any attention to any of the houses on this. Okay. The the, the planetary locations are correct. He, he was born with a moon Pluto conjunction. Got it. Um, and anyone who ever saw the movie Amadeus, you know, gets that moon Pluto and how there was this whole obsession with death. Mm. Um, um, and the intensity uh, that with which he, which with which he lived, um, Sun conjunct Saturn, uh, Mercury in Aquarius, opposite Neptune, and a Venus Mars trine. How sweet is that? Now that trine is out of um, it's out out of element. Because we have a twenty-nine, it's one degree of orb, right? But it's applying within one degree. <laughs> it's applying within one degree, and it's actually double applying because that Saturn is re or the Mars is retrograde. Okay, I mean it's just applying, but it's applying from both directions, right? Um, and yet it's out of sign or out of element. It's uh, air to air to water. Mm -hmm. But when we look at this, and Mozart's chart is one of the most used charts in books on harmonics. Because when you run the fifth harmonic, which are the quintiles, mm. there's so much energy. And again, we see one of these quintile yods with the Jupiter-Neptune, the Jupiter-Neptune base, both of which are quintile to Uranus. And then we see other quintiles, including Venus quintile, the uh, Pluto-Moon conjunction. And that Pluto-Moon conjunction in the Venus quintile, it that's within a half a degree of orb. Um, and so, again, we see here the creator, the person who who has the, the charisma to be the creator, and yet there's also some strong septiles here that show that, again, there's something about him that is more complicated than, than meets the surface. Mm. Let's take a look at one or two more. We'll just breeze through. Ah, uh, Princess Diana. There we go. Um, a chart that a gazillion people have looked at. Mm -hmm. Grand trine in water, if you use Chiron, that actually is part of a kite. And there's a whole sequence of, I want to say oppositions, but it's 
the moon node and Chiron at the bottom of the chart opposite the Uranus North Node and Mars-Pluto conjunction at the top of the chart, and a very tight Venus square moon. That Venus square moon, uh, square Uranus, that T-square with the moon, Venus, and Uranus certainly is indicative of her troubled married life and the fact that she um, couldn't get what she wanted because, you know, because Prince Charles was... Um, never apparently willing or was ready to let go of uh, Camilla. Um, but um, the the extent at which that Uranus came through um, uh, in her life and her breaking out of um, uh, that lifestyle, that marriage, um, and um, uh, yeah, and the fact that she was a cancer, you know, she was, you know, cancer with the sun, conjunct uh, uh mercury conjunct the sun you know she just really wanted to have a home and be loved um <clears throat> but i don't think she ever got that anything to say about it before we look at the uh no just that yes yeah, just from a traditional standpoint of view as an example of um some you know tricky stuff just from yeah, traditional astrology having the ruler of the eighth house of death and mortality and the third house of short distance travel, and she ended up dying in a car accident. Actually, also interestingly, in my Hellenistic course, use this as an example of an out of sign opposition because the moon is actually applying to an opposition with Mars in a day chart within 13 degrees. And especially for the moon, the ancient astrologers would use a 13 degree orb for it because that's its average daily motion over the course of a day and night. Uh -huh. And if it's applying um, within 13 degrees, even if it's across a sign boundary, that would be taken into account. But in this instance, unfortunately, it's a very difficult, what they call a maltreating or the original word for affliction aspect because that moon's headed headlong into that opposition yeah. with Mars. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, that's, that's all I got. Um, and then when we look at the um, at the septile, well, we got a backup one. Those are wrong order. So this is intriguing because this is an example of a chart with a septile yod. And actually, it's hard to see here because the lines are so thick. It's actually two separate septile yods that are about five, six degrees separate from one another. Hmm. That the Mercury Sun is a six degree, that the um, Uranus Mars is eight degrees, that the Jupiter um, Saturn is um, um, eight degrees, eight, nine, ten, no, yeah, eight degrees. And so there's really two interlocking septile yods where the base of the yod is the Mercury Sun and the um, <clears throat> Uranus Mars Pluto. And the apex of the yod is the um, Jupiter Saturn. Hmm. And you know there is a there's a biquintile buried in here that's um, that's Mars down to Saturn, that's a two degree orb. And there are a couple of other quintiles that are less important, but I think that the septiles here are so significant because this is the part of her life that was out of her control. 
going back to the Dane Rudyard concept of fate. This is the part of her that she was a real princess, <laughs> and she lived in a real princess castle. And yet she was more at home on the streets of Calcutta with Mother Teresa, with people, you know, in her face and interacting with people like that than she was in the isolation wards of, of royalty. Hmm. Um, there's something about her chart that was so um, electric and eccentric that people like loved her. They fell in love with her. And the other interesting thing that I don't have here to show, but at the moment of her critical, um, I call it her exit visa, her critical automobile accident, there were transiting septiles and biceptiles all over the place to her septile yod. And, and I know I said earlier, I don't normally look at septiles and quintiles as transits to predict events. But in her chart with that septile yod, those septile yods being so strong, it was very interesting that there were incredibly powerful and quantitative, there were a lot of transiting um, septile energies to her natal chart at the moment of, the, of that accident, hmm. as if it was already somehow said and done. Boom, out of here. Right. Wow. Um, yeah, that's pretty interesting how that Yod uh, points to those two planets, and then Jupiter, of course, is the ruler of the Ascendant. Yeah. Yeah, that may be enough. There may be others, but no, that's probably plenty. I think we've gone through them. Okay. So, you know, and again, my point here is not so much in, <clears throat> in analyzing these particular charts, as all of these charts in some way had showed strength in either the septiles or the quintiles. Mm -hmm. And and they wouldn't show us anything. Well, I was going to say they wouldn't show us anything we didn't already know, but it's not completely true. Um, because I think that when looking at like David Bowie's chart, you know, the, the extraordinary weight of those septiles is so descriptive of who he was as a pop figure. Mm -hmm. um, the same thing with Michael Jackson. For that matter, the same thing with Bob Dylan. Um, and um, it's just interesting that when we open up our orbs a bit and we begin to look at these, we begin to see the extraordinariness of these aspects without necessarily trying to nail any one particular pattern between this planet and that planet. Although I have to say that there are quintiles and septiles that over the years I've learned to like, you know, that when I see it in a chart, I kind of get a sense of, of something. Um, <clears throat> but I can't tell you how many clients I've had over the years who have an extraordinary amount of septiles in particular. Hmm. And I talk to them about this septile energy, and maybe they're a Capricorn with lots of planets in Taurus. Then I start talking about this otherworldly piece that's too complicated and that even that people that know you can't quite know the complexity and you can't quite describe it because you don't have language. And I've had people where I've said that they're just melted and crying because it's so familiar and so potent and no one's ever put it to words. And it's not because there's anything special about me other than I've somehow fallen into this trap 
<laughs> of uh, thinking that these minor or non-Ptolemaic metaphysical or quantum aspects are important and need to be recognized. And I also think that there's something here, you know, we've said over the years, astrologers have claimed that um, that planets are discovered at the time when the energy of the planets come into being. Uranus being discovered around the American and French revolutions and the, you know, the independence factor or Pluto being discovered around the rise of mass fascism and atomic, you know, it, it seems like planets are discovered at a time when they, well, quintiles were actually discovered 500 years ago, but no one used them. Mm. Or people like Lily reference them saying, see what you think. <laughs> I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and yet now more and more people are looking at these aspects and it's almost like the metaphysical time has come. We've reached a point where it, astrology is not just about the prediction of an event or about the occurrence of something in the three-dimensional world. There's something that goes on in the metaphysical realms that feeds the physical and these aspects seem to bring them into light. Brilliant. Um, yeah, something I've been thinking as you're saying all this is just, um, you know, the world is an extraordinarily complicated place. And sometimes with some of these additional factors that astrologers use that are initially set out as like minor or secondary things to look at, it, it complicates the picture. And sometimes you run that risk of overcomplicating the picture or having too many variables or too much data for the human mind to actually process. But in, in reality, when we think about the world and all of the complex factors that are constantly going on in any one situation or any one person's life, or even in like a city with all the millions of people living in it, it the world's a pretty complicated place. And you would expect if astrology is to um, to mimic that, or if astrology is to reflect that, the astrology also is probably pretty complicated as well. Especially compared to life 2,000 years ago. Sure. Which had much more to do <clears throat> with the immediate issues of survival. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to some extent. I mean, not completely. Obviously, there were plenty of people who were living in privilege in cities with servants and had time to contemplate the cosmos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, most of our major philosophies and world religions come from that time period, so it's not like they were completely unfamiliar uh, with you know what you're calling the metaphysical aspects of reality. True, true. Or yeah. like the golden mean or what have you. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, in terms of you know, life has become much more complicated. There's things that didn't exist. Technology, for example, has really accelerated to some insane rate. You go from the start of the century of like horse-drawn carriages being common to suddenly there's billionaires like flying out to space at this point on a regular basis. Yeah. So sometimes times change. Astrology sometimes changes and sometimes new things do get incorporated in different ways. As life continues to grow and develop and evolve. Yeah. So, you know, coming full circle, <clears throat> just to be clear, I'm in no way saying the zodiac shouldn't be used. Mm -hmm. I, I use it in everything I do. I'm also not suggesting that we leave any of the um, traditional aspects um, aside, regardless of how we want to, what we want to call them, the major five aspects. Mm -hmm. 
but I am suggesting that there are not just nuances, but jumps of, of awareness that we can gain when we begin to integrate the other harmonics into our, um, into our 12 fold system, um, including the semi-sextiles and quincunxes, which we didn't spend time with today, and including the half squares and the squares and a half, which we didn't spend time on today, mm-hmm. and including the divisions by um, five, seven, nine, which we didn't spend time on today, the nines, or even elevens. Um, the problem is, is that the higher the harmonic, the closer together <laughs> the 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 aspects, the the, the points become. Mm-hmm. Until it's hard to visualize, you know, a something with 27, you know, divisions, Mm. you know. Um, And yet I think that whether we like it or not, whether we want to use it or not, that with the um, continuation of what's going on in computer astrology interfacing, that we will see more and more of this become part of a larger body of astrology, not necessarily to replace anything, but again, it's a it's a confluence, not a it's 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 not a one is more important than the other. There are just different ways of looking at things, and I think you said very clearly and very well, you know, that as the universe continues or as our world continues to complexify, if that's a word, I think it is, so does how we reflect it in our metaphysics and in our astrology. Mm, right. Yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, uh, where would you recommend, are there any good resources for learning about these aspects or going into it more? Do you have anything, have you done any videos in your YouTube channel? Which I have to give a shout out for. You've been doing some great videos and your channel keeps like growing rapidly because you do these great forecasts really regularly. Yeah, um, th- there are some things there. There are some things um, on these aspects on the um, uh, on the uh, cosmic connection that I've been doing f- with uh, on the astrology hub. Um, there are a few decent books, but none that I mean. It, this is a book that I have to write. It's not just about doing a, a video on it. Mm. Um, uh, the <clears throat> Uh, one of the books, one of the authors, I think, who's done a good job with a lot of this material, um, is a, um, British gentleman named David Hamblin. I don't know if you know David Hamblin. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a book called Aspects, Harmonics, and Midpoints. Um, and I think he wrote that, um, with, now I, I can't remember, but he's written a couple of books that, that are, that that are about harmonics and using these uh, methods. Um, he focuses more on the harmonics themselves, but focuses a lot on the septiles and quintiles. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> beyond that, there's not a lot of really great material on it. You had mentioned the one the book that you started with by Michael Meyer called the Handbook for the Humanistic Astrologer, and that also doesn't have a huge amount of material. It's just here are the aspects, conjunction, squares, quintiles, septiles, sec- you know, it was, so I didn't, I didn't know I was studying anything that other people weren't studying. Yeah. 
I remember getting my astro.com chart and just seeing in the aspectarian all those little weird ones that I'd never seen defined. And I think everyone has that drive then seeing that to want to know what that, those mean. Yeah. And I think astro, um, they, they do quintiles, but I don't think they calculate septiles. Hmm. Okay. They've bought into the Johannes Kepler, God doesn't use septiles. They're too complicated. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you should definitely write that book. People should let us know in the comments below, maybe if they really want you to write that book or maybe do some workshop or something on this in the future in order to get some of this down on paper. Yeah. And and also people people can find me on, on Facebook, facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer. I would say you can find me on um, uh, on Instagram, but I seem to be having a little bit of a problem with Instagram these days. Oh no! Um, yeah, my site got hijacked and reclaimed by someone else, and I can't. I, I, I'll I'll either get it back or recreate it under the same name. It was um, Rick, Rick Levine Astrologer on Instagram, hmm. but right now it it doesn't exist. Okay. So if if you're looking for that, give it a week or so, and something will be back. But um, uh, yeah, it's like I one day I went to my site and couldn't get on it, and someone so they got a password, they changed the password, changed the phone number, changed the account name, and I don't even know why. Why are they doing this? Oh right, uh, yeah, I got a message. So you're saying that message that came from you that said that you loved me was not from you, or was that not true? Okay, <laughs> I'm not touching that. All right, fine. We'll talk about that later <laughs> off camera. What did we decide that your, your YouTube URL was? Um, I th I think it's uh, I I don't remember. You told it's me like it was YouTube.com/slash Rick Levine. Yeah, let's call that. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the description below this video. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me today. It's a lot of fun. This is very unexpected. My Uranian friend who just told me last night you're <laughs> driving through Denver, and then we sit down and do this, but this is great. Good. Well, I, I hope it's of some interest to some people. Uh, you know, For some people, this is, for my students who have been working with me for years, they can't look at a chart without the quintiles and septiles. Right. And yet for other people, it's like a first time thing and seeing people look at their own charts all I got to say is you can't use scrunchy little tiny aspects. Mm. If you're going to look at it, if you want to see what they're doing in your chart, you know, use, you know, three degrees or so on the septile series and five degrees on the quintiles. Otherwise, you'll never see enough to matter. Okay. All right. Good advice. Well, I guess that's it for this episode of the Astrology Podcast. So thanks a lot for joining me. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening or watching this episode. And that's it. So we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Morgan McKinsey, and Kristen Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast.
The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you would like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, The Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, The Portland School of Astrology at portlandastrology.org, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io.